When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson. Always grateful for the chance to come together and talk shop and study scripture. Honestly, I know how busy people are and how many other things there are on your to-do list. So the fact you'd come and spend a few hours a week with me in scripture really is amazing. So I consider it a blessing, a privilege, an honor. Uh, thank you so much for letting me join you. And thank you for your kindness. I actually got a package today at my office. Uh, I opened it up and there was a, a kind note from one of you saying, I love your taste in scripture, but I'm not so sure about your taste in ties, and you helped me out. Uh, so I'm wearing your contribution to the cause, and I love it. So uh, <laughs> thank you to, your, to my newfound friend uh, and, and uh, erstwhile tailor, uh, making sure that I look somewhat presentable uh, online. Thank you for that. Uh, I am excited about what we get to talk about today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in the, our whirlwind tour through the Book of the Twelve, the so-called Minor Prophets. We have already done Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Today we'll be doing Jonah and Micah, so we'll, we'll be halfway done after this week. Uh, and you probably already know Jonah well. I mean, they make veggie tale movies out of his story, for crying out loud. Probably not so much with the Book of Micah. And yet his book is amazing. In fact, if I think you could distill discipleship down to a single verse in the book of Micah and then let the rest of scripture be a footnote or illustrations of the idea. Uh, it's that good. So I hope you'll endure to the end of this week's material and make sure that Micah gets his word in as well. But before we start with Jonah, if you'll forgive me uh, the chance to go on a field trip, and it might be a fairly extended one, uh, but there's a bigger picture issue I want to discuss with you that the book of Jonah allows us to wrestle with, in some ways forces us to wrestle with. Uh, and so I'll, I'll be talking about a few other things along the way, but trust me that we're, we're getting back to Jonah, okay? The issue is this, I actually just had a conversation with someone out there that's in faith crisis, struggling with some things, and we talked for a good long time on Zoom, and one of the, the, the main issue for him was how much of Scripture he could take literally and how much he was supposed to take symbolically or figuratively. Kind of the, the challenge between history and myth, what's fiction and what's nonfiction. And that issue is not an issue for many people. They don't, they don't question either way. It doesn't matter to them, or they just keep moving on, uh, or they take everything literally or everything uh, figuratively uh, and just try to live the gospel. Now, that's not a bad approach, but for some, no, I, I need this, a more clear answer on some things. And for this good brother, uh, it was causing him to, to trip up over his progress in terms of, I just can't get over these kinds of things. Is it even possible that, and then fill in the blank. And so this is a, a challenge for people right now. I mean, that, the conversation as of a week ago. Uh, and so the book of Jonah really does push the issue because it's a huge question out there of is this, a, is this history or is this uh, a parable of sorts? 
Uh, reminded me actually, I had my trainer in the mission field, amazing guy, Elder Monjarras, it was his name. He was from Mexico originally, uh, native speaker. I was so thrilled that I could actually understand him, though I couldn't understand the Puerto Ricans yet. And he was just a wonderful guy. He, uh, he would always call me Mi Pequeño Saltamonte, which means my little grasshopper. Uh, and that was his nickname for me as his, his greenie. And so I was uh, gratefully his little grasshopper as he was trying to whip me into shape. And he would help me with my Spanish, and I'd, sometimes I'd have to help him with his English. And one day in particular, he, was like, he would say, Elder Halverson, Mi Pequeño Saltamonte, I want to tell you a history. And I'd say, oh, well, Elder Monjarras. Uh, in English, it's just story. And he's like, I know, I'm going to tell you a history. I'm like, no, just story. That's the, just, I see a history is different than a story. History has this, this feeling of nonfiction and, and accuracy, and this is how it is, the, the facts, right? Story, on the other hand, is more, it can be made up. It, it's just kind of telling a tale or teaching principles, whatever it might be. And he's like, no, no, okay, fine. I'm, I'm going to tell you a history. I go, mm. But you mean story, right? He's like, see, see. I'm like, then just story. And he, and he goes, that's what I'm saying. Histori. I'm like, <laughs> it just starts with the S, okay? So here's the challenge. S and T never start any words in Spanish, okay? So historia is what you'd say in Spanish. And he just had a hard time just starting with the S. I'm like, just story. Got it? And he tries so hard to go. A story. I'm like, mm, there was still the E. Could you hear the E at the beginning? No, just story. He's like, okay, okay. A story. I'm like, so close. And we'd have a, we, we had fun with this. Uh, but to me, it was always this, this, I'm going to tell you a history. And honestly, the more I think of that in this context, maybe Elder Monjarras had it right. That... Is it worth so much mental effort to try to wrestle between is it a story or is it a history? Uh, it sounded the same to him. And in many ways, it can sound the same to us if we look for the principles that are found in these stories and histories either way. Now, I want to talk about that, though, in, in light of the book of Jonah, and here's why. Many of you know already that I study anti-religious rhetoric. Uh, my PhD work was in anti-biblical attacks. Uh, before that, I had studied anti-Book of Mormon attacks and just trying to make sense of how people use words as their weapon. And what kind of leverage can you use to try to get your target to drop their own beliefs? Since the realm of religion is non-provable, makes it hard for believers, but non-disprovable, and that makes it hard for polemicists, for those that are attacking faith. So what do they rely on typically? Rhetoric. If I can say things in such a way that to play upon your emotions so that you decide seemingly on your own that you'll walk away from your own faith. Now, most of what I spent my dissertation time on was with Thomas Paine who was the original Doubting Thomas in American history. He was the, the godfather, the patron saint, though he would not like either of those titles because of their religious undertones, the godfather or patron saint of American skepticism. And it all began, uh, well, most famously, with a book he wrote called The Age of Reason. Now, let me back up and tell you something about Thomas Paine's approach. And I'll try not to geek out or nerd out too much, uh, though there's 400 pages worth of dissertation floating around in my head. Uh, there's a word you need to know, and the word is ideograph. 
It's a, a, a technical term found in rhetorical studies, and an ideograph is a very vaguely defined word that has so much cultural capital, so much weight in the public mind, that if you can lay claim to that ideograph, if you can stake a claim in that word, almost trademark it, so to speak, and say, oh, no, no, that word's on our side, then because it's so powerful in the public conscience, you're, you're, you're going to win because that word's on your side. I mean, how do we fight against that word? That's why some scholars call it, call them God terms. Same idea for an ideograph. That, though that term, it's like God. Speaking against it would be blasphemous. Uh, it, it sanctifies any argument it touches. And so if I can trademark that ideograph, that God term, it will do most of the heavy lifting for my own argument. In fact, it might excuse me from having to make any arguments at all. And if it's hard for me to stake a full ownership on that ideograph, then the opposite approach, the more negative approach, is to flip the God term into its opposite, now a devil term, and try to assign it to my opponent. And if it sticks, if I can attach it to them, <laughs> then they lose. And if they lose, then I win by default. Okay? And this happens in politics all the time. When a politician believes in their own platform, they typically... Uh, campaign positively. But if they start losing trust or faith in themselves uh, or in the, in the obvious superiority of their position, then they'll turn to mudslinging and character assassination and ad hominem attacks and everything else. And often what they'll do is try to reduce things to just the two of us. The party system tends to do that already for us. And then it's the idea of if I can scare you away from them, then that scares you towards me. I'm okay being the lesser of two evils, because if there's only two of us, then the lesser will win. And so if I can attach a devil term, a negative ideograph to you, then by default, I win uh, the, the rhetorical competition. Okay? Does this, does make, I hope this is making sense. Maybe a concrete example would help. Because as culture changes over time, ideographs change over time as well. So what's the reigning kind of vaguely defined term in our day? To me, the strongest ideograph in the 21st century is love. And if you can claim love to your side, now we're the more loving of the two, or flip it around, devil term, if I can make your position seem unloving, then who's going to vote for that? Who's going to go in that direction? Think about it in terms of the church's stance on certain very important social issues. And because of our understanding of the law of chastity, the plan of salvation, the nature of God, the complementary nature of male and female. Anything that we say as far as what we would consider love to our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community, uh, if it smacks at all of restriction or narrow interpretation of what people can or cannot do, if people can call that unloving, which again is so vague, the term love. The Greeks had four different words for it. So when they say love wins, rhetorically they're right. You can't say anything about it. I want to say what kind of love wins. If you're talking pure love of Christ, then yes, love wins. The charity never faileth. That's the New Testament version of love wins. Uh, but are you talking about romantic love? Are you talking about eros? Uh, are you talking brotherly love? I, I love my wife and I love pizza. But what kind of love are we talking about here? Which trumps all? And again, from a rhetorical standpoint, it's like, oh, let's not get into those weeds. Let me just lay, stake a claim in love. Say that love will let you do anything you want. Love has no limits. Uh, love, 
of neighbor, even Trump's love of God. It's, see, there's a difference in love that even there. You see where we're going with this? And if I can own that one, trademark it, or leave you with the dregs, the unloving, then I win. As long as people don't think too hard and realize, oh, there's actually love on both sides. What kind are we talking about? We're starting to figure this out. Well, rewind the clock, and as you go back through American history, at least, it's interesting to see American become an ideograph, where, oh, you can't do that, that's un-American. It's like, well, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, don't, don't ask, just, I'm saying that's un-American, and you ought to be a just good American. Okay, rewind before that, words like liberty or freedom. Hmm, okay, freedom to do whatever, freedom from other things. What do you mean? Don't worry. I just, our side is freedom. Progress is another one. We're all for progress. Progress toward what? Don't ask. It's on our side. And everybody loves progress. The, the reigning ideograph, though, of the time period that included Joseph Smith, as well as uh, prior generations, I'll give you two examples. One of them was common sense. That was the period of Scottish common sense realism as the reigning philosophy. And the beauty of it was, if it's common sense, anybody can tap into that. You don't have to be well-educated. I mean, the most common laborer ought to have common sense. But now do you see why Thomas Paine would name his all-important political pamphlet, Common Sense? What he was doing, <laughs> rhetorically, it's incredible. He was taking hundreds of years of conventional wisdom and turning it on its head, basically by taking that old conventional wisdom, the old common sense, to be honest, called monarchy. So, of course, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's divine right of kings. God set it up that way. And, and Thomas Paine says, that's not common sense. In fact, that's nonsense. Uh, I mean, look at the royal brute of Britain, and he makes fun of King George III. In fact, so much of what he was doing was making fun of the opposition. He was a little hesitant to completely believe that common sense was fully on his side. And so you can see with his rhetorical sleight of hand, if I can make the opposite side look like nonsense and then call my side common sense, <laughs> then I win. And I don't even have to do a whole lot of rational argumentation because, after all, if it's common sense, then anything beyond that would should be unnecessary. Ooh, in fact, I can use that in my favor. I can almost purposefully avoid a lot of rational argumentation because that would belie the, the, sense, the fact that maybe this isn't common sense after all. So let's just avoid the whole thing. Let's spend most of our time speaking in just assertions instead of arguments, and then we'll punctuate that assertion with some snide remark. Usually some, I call it the rhetoric of ridicule. And if I can just get an exclamation point with a punchline and really punch monarchy in the face so that, so that monarchy looks like it's, it's absurd, that's where you get the phrase reductio ad absurdum. It means reduce to the absurd. You know, if I can push you down by by mocking you, by ridiculing you. And what does that do to my position? By default, I come out looking like I'm perfectly commonsensical because your position is absolutely nonsensical. That, that was the genius, among other things. Rhetorically, he, Thomas Paine was a mastermind. But that's a huge approach when it came to common sense. Well, fast forward almost two decades, and he writes another book, and it's called The Age of Reason. 
think about the title, you hear the word reason, there's another reigning ideograph at the end of the 18th century. I mean, this is the height of the Enlightenment. And so everyone wants to claim reason to their side. I mean, my position is eminently more reasonable than my opponent's. I am rational, and he or she is irrational. Now, that's easy to do with religion, because religion has a certain aspect that is non-rational. Not to say irrational, simply beyond reason. Some would say super-rational. Above it, there's the miraculous, there's the divine, there's the realm of faith. There is spiritual experience that can't completely be explained in empirical, measurable terms. And that's not just for religion, by the way. Most of the humanities are that way. You could call them the divinities if you want. Uh, but this, this concept as far as pain was concerned, you see, in the age of reason, he's going to try to do to religion what common sense had done to, to politics. If I can take down the king by mocking him, then perhaps I can take down revealed religion by laughing at it as well. If I, I can laugh it off the stage because if people feel that they are being laughed at because of their religious beliefs, this is the great and spacious building, my friends. And if those inside can point at the finger and laugh and mock, scorn, then how do we feel? Somehow, even that incredible taste of the, tree, the fruit of the tree of life gets drowned out in this sense of shame that people are laughing at me. And so what Thomas Paine does in the Age of Reason is he shreds the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and he cherry picks the parts that he can make most fun of. He claims to be only using reason. He does that at the beginning of several of his books where it's like, I'm only going to use reason here because I don't need anything else, which is such a lie. He uses everything else, but he hides it behind this facade of pure reason, of mere common sense. And then again, if somebody calls him on it and says, there was no argument there, you just made an assertion and then laughed at me. And lots of ministers saw exactly what he was doing and pushed him on that. And he said, no, I shouldn't have to make any rational arguments. The, the truth is as plain as the nose on my face. Why do you think we call it common sense? If you can't even handle that, then no amount of argumentation on my part could possibly do you any good. See the genius of his approach? Well, this is where we get back to the book of Jonah. Because in the Age of Reason, like I said, he's cherry-picking passages throughout the text to try to make fun of them. It's like whichever ones can make God either look laughable or, or unkind. We, we're going to make him sin against rationality and sin against humanity. And if we can make God or religion look absurd or inhumane, then either my mind will reject it as I laugh, or my heart will reject it as I get offended or angry. And as we study the Old Testament so far, start to almost finish now, there are so many places that you could use, as long as you cherry-pick them and separate them out from everything else that shows the incredible mercy of God, and that shows the wisdom in Scripture. But Thomas Paine didn't want to do any of that. He was banking on people only knowing the Bible just enough that they would recognize these strange stories, these, these ones that could be made to seem off-putting, and then get them laughing and they, until they laugh themselves out of faith. Well, the book of Jonah was, was key to his whole argument, or lack thereof. Because what Paine does with the book of Jonah is basically say, this is, Jonah is the punchline 
And the idea here is, the way that Paine presents the Bible, it's a farce from start to finish. He even suggests that the prophets, they weren't prophets, they were basically ancient comedians that were making fun of these kinds of nonsensical beliefs. And the joke is on the reader, because people are falling for it. Can you believe that? But just in case they didn't get the idea. I mean, at some point, even the comedian needs to kind of Oh, break out of character. Or the, when you get to a point where the comedian like can't keep a straight face and they start laughing at their own jokes and you're like, okay, this was a comedy act the whole time. Whew, you had me going. I mean, your straight face, I, I thought you were telling me something true, but wow, okay. And again, that's one of the dangers of satire or parody in general. It, it's meant to be taken seriously. And the way Payne describes the Bible is, here's these quote-unquote prophets telling all this crazy stuff but with a straight face, and so you buy it until you get to the book of Jonah, because Jonah is so outlandishly absurd. I mean, a big fish swallowing somebody and then spitting them up on land? Don't you get it? I mean, the book of Jonah is where the comedian finally can't keep a straight face, and even they laugh. And then you realize, have you been yanking my chain this whole time? And as far as Thomas Paine was concerned, of course. So forget everything you've ever thought about the Bible. Just dismiss the whole thing out of hand. Throw out the baby with the bathwater, please. And do it laughingly so you don't actually think about all the truth that you're losing and leaving behind. Again, he was a genius in doing this. But the thing about Jonah was the idea of if, I'll put it this way, it's one thing to think that a, a, an animal, a fish, a big fish could swallow a human. But if you think that's shocking, even more shocking is that a human could swallow the story of a human being swallowed by a big fish. And that was, that was Paine's genius. This was the most effective anti-religious tract in the late 18th through the 19th century. People started, skeptics would celebrate Thomas Paine's birthday yeah, posthumously. And that was just, there's, they called it American infidelity. Yeah, that we want to be unfaithful. If we talk about covenant infidelity, well, there's the history of American free thought. That's what they call themselves. We're free to think whatever we want. And then the believers would label that infidelity. Okay? Forgive me if I'm, getting, if I'm geeking out too much on the, uh, the history lesson. But do you see the, the challenge with the book of Jonah? Even when the, when the Book of Mormon came forth, okay? this is really fascinating. Uh, there were a pair of brothers that were very famous skeptics from the British Isles. And they had got, caught wind of the Book of Mormon when it first came out. One brother actually found a discarded copy on a, on a canal boat in the Erie Canal. Really interesting. And he's perusing this thing. He tells his brothers, like, I, got, I, got a, I found one. This is amazing. I, I, I want to I hear the story. And he totally makes fun of the, the story behind the Book of Mormon. He couldn't get past that to actually read the text. And just thought it was absolutely insane that anyone would believe in angels in this, this day of, of railroads, right? That anyone would believe in a gold Bible and you can translate it through some Urim and Thummim. Are you kidding me? And they thought the whole thing was a joke and they, they kept perpetuating it in that light. This is where the Book of Mormon musical gets its origin. Let's just mock revealed religion in hopes that people will laugh their way out of the theater and laugh themselves out of the church. So the, this pair of brothers, they actually talked about Jonah. And they called the Book of Mormon the ultimate Jonah and the whale 
tall tale. Can you believe it? They even told a story of an old woman in Scotland, I believe, who was a skeptic, speaking with fellow skeptics, and she brought up that same old joke. It was fairly old by then, since Thomas Paine had laughed about it a generation before. And it was the idea that you think the whale's gullet had to be big enough? <laughs> no. The gullet of human beings is infinitely larger since the gullet is big enough to make them gullible enough to swallow a tall tale like that. Now, are you feeling laughed at yet? If you have ever been made to feel unintelligent, downright stupid, if you've been made a laughing stock because of beliefs that you hold dear, then you know exactly I call it the leverage of laughter. And again, I see it in the rhetoric of ridicule. And the book of Jonah is, is a gold mine for those that are trying to attack the faith. So I hope that we can do a better job of navigating it ourselves. In some ways, it goes back to my trainer, Elder Monjaras. And is this a, a story or is it a history? And can I even tell the difference? Because what's interesting about the aftermath and the reception history of the book of Jonah, and also the rejection history of the book of Jonah, is those that wanted to hold on to it from a faithful perspective took typically one of two approaches. And one was the conservative approach, and one was the liberal approach. And there are still churches to this day that are dividing over conservative and liberal leanings, religiously, not just politically, though there's a lot of overlap. And the challenge here is, how do you navigate the book of Jonah if you don't want to throw out the entire Bible, like Thomas Paine was hoping? Well, from a conservative standpoint, and again, this is, you'll see this a, a, a hundred years later, a century later, they're still having these modernist fundamentalist debates. And it's the modernists are the liberals and the fundamentalists are the conservatives. And how literally can we take things in the Bible? And the, the, liberal, the, uh, the conservatives, the, the fundamentalists, wanted to take every single thing literally, pretty much. And the modernists or the liberals wanted to almost uh, allegorize everything. Those are extremes, but that's where, they were, that's where they were leaning. And when it comes to the book of Jonah, you'll have those on the conservative side saying, well, absolutely this is possible. Uh, in fact, it's probable. In fact, it's downright inerrant. This is exact. This is history. It's not no story at all. They'll point to things like the fact that a prophet Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings. The same Jonah that's introduced to us at the beginning of the book of Jonah. So here we have in a historical element, nonfiction, the, the mention of the prophet Jonah. To which others would say, well, does that necessarily mean it has to be the same one? Oh, same name, same father, same... It's like, okay, but could this be some other writer that's writing stories and just attaches it to a figure that people believed in? Okay, now we're getting down into the weeds of the arguments, okay, between the conservatives and the liberals, between the fundamentalists and the modernists. Uh, the conservatives would say, of course God can, can do anything like this. He's a God of miracles. We could say that... In the Mediterranean, there are sea creatures large enough to be able to consume a human being. Uh, the sperm whale could do it. The whale shark could do it. Uh, some would even say, and this is actually a fascinating defense, because uh, people would say, no, it's still, they're too skeptical. There's oh, three days and three nights. It's like, okay, and they'll push back and say, well, that could just mean the parts of any three days, kind of like Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, parts of three days in the tomb. 
And okay, but still, how can anybody survive that long inside uh, a sea creature? And they'll push back and either say, well, again, this was a sea creature uh, created by the Lord. We'll see that in the text itself. And so this could be any, any kind of thing. Uh, or they'll say, okay, I'll see you, uh, your, your objection as far as could it be possible that, that Jonah survived this. Let's say no. And let's say that when he was spat up or vomited onto the land, that he was dead, but that the Lord brought him back to life. Now, with faith in the ability to bring people back to life, that's Jesus and Lazarus. I have no problem with that. In fact, when Jesus talks about to those who are, who are demanding a sign, he says, I'll give you no sign but the sign of the prophet Jonah. That just as he was three days in the belly of the whale, I will be three days in, in the belly of the tomb, and I'll come forth. Again, some literalists uh, would say, ooh, that, that, is this evidence of the resurrection? Was Jesus calling attention to the sign of Jonah in far more literal ways than even most biblical readers take it? Interesting. Again, meanwhile, those on the more liberal uh, side of things would say, ah, no, I still, it, I, can't, I can't wrap my, my intellectual, rational brain around that. And so can I just chalk this whole thing up to being a story, a story, uh, instead of a history? Uh, because after all, Jesus taught in parables all the time. And does it have to be, does it have to be nonfiction to teach truth? Uh, in which case, we don't have to look for archaeological evidence of the, the home of the prodigal son, because that was a parable. Uh, and so the Good Samaritan, are we going to try to find out his name and address? It's a story, okay? But the story teaches incredible truth. So let's just take the story of the book of Jonah and leave it at that. It's a story. And get, get some good lessons from it. Okay. Now, if they're saying that, yeah, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I wrestle with both sides because I meet people on both sides all the time. And, and sometimes I worry about... Uh, those that want to keep everything literal, and I worry about those that want to allegorize or figuralize everything also. You see the same problem in the New Testament, by the way. When Jesus taught the Jews, so many of them took everything literally, when, even when he didn't intend it to be that way. When he tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, my mom's not going to like that. Nic Jesus is like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> Whoa, born of water, spirit, are you getting it? Never mind. Uh, when he talks to the woman at the well in the next chapter in John 4, and he says, you know, if you knew who I was, I'd give you living water and you'd never have to come back and draw water again. And she takes it literally and thinks, wow, that would save me a ton of chores. Give me some of that. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Shortly thereafter, the apostles come back and they say, oh, we brought you food. And Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they're like, huh? Where, did you get takeout? DoorDash? I mean, how? <sighs> I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of my Father that sent me. That's what fills me up. Never mind. Or my favorite, when they're going to go raise Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep, and we need to go down to Jerusalem to wake him up. And the apostles, again, take it all literally, and, and they're like, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. That's fine. And Jesus is like, seriously, <laughs> he's dead. You see the metaphor? Never mind. Let's just go. Uh, so there can be a problem in... Assuming that every single thing is, is meant to be literal. But there's an equal and opposite problem when you start trying to figuralize everything. And that's been the tendency in modern times, among the modernists. Uh, 
And what they'll tend to do is take everything as a parable, even down to things like the atonement and the resurrection and the second coming. And that's, I would draw the line far before I ever got close to those things. Jesus really did atone. And it wasn't just to suffer a difficult death in hopes that it would well, pull our heartstrings and hope that we'd be nicer to one another. It's far deeper than that. Uh, those that would simply figuralize the resurrection and say, well, no, Jesus couldn't rise again because that's scientifically impossible. And so uh, that must have just been descriptive of the apostles' attempt to keep the spirit of Christ alive through the first century. Yeah, that's the resurrection. There you go. And those that figuralize the second coming, Say, oh, no, that's impossible. He'll never return. But once we pull off social justice and sufficient kumbaya, then the spirit of Christ will have returned to the earth. And that's the second coming, quote, unquote. You see the dangers of both extremes? If we were to map this, by the way, over our stages of faith diagram of creation, fall, atonement, it is interesting that typically those in creation stage want everything to be literal. And those in fall stage typically want everything to be figurative. And again, those are overgeneralizations, but hopefully they're simple enough that we can start to wrap our heads around more difficult concepts. Uh, it's those in the first stage, only nonfiction can teach me truth. To which I'd say, never, never read Shakespeare? Never read C.S. Lewis? Uh, there's all, never read a parable from Jesus? And then those in the fall stage would often say, oh no, there is no nonfiction. That's all we have is fiction. Uh, whereas those, and then the irony is, as usual, those in creation and those in fall can't stand each other and end up fighting over these things and end up tearing the church apart, which is typically what's happened throughout much of Protestantism for the last century. And in that case, Thomas Paine wins by default as does every other doubting Thomas out there, because in some ways they don't care which side of the straight and narrow you fall off of. Just fall. Just leave. And whether it's a too hot version of the Goldilocks or too cold version of the Goldilocks, you're out of the Goldilocks zone and you've missed something. And worst of all, you're fighting each other. In which case you're tearing apart the body of Christ. And I don't care who wins that one because you both lose. And so what would a stage three atonement level perspective be? As far as I can tell, it would probably be, number one, okay with people in creation and okay with people in fall. They would probably try to avoid the dogmatism of creation and the dogmatism of fall for a more open flexibility of, hmm, I wonder which one it is. Is this a story or a history? Uh, there's, I, there's possibilities on either part. Uh, why would you say, uh, one question I would ask those in the, in the liberal camp, why do you want to make it all figurative? Why do you not, can, why can you not accept a more straightforward, this actually happened, a historical event rather than a, a figurative kind of metaphor? And if they have reasons that don't deny the divine, I'm happy to hear them out. If it's a matter of, well, there's linguistic issues here, or they, these and the source criticism and, and the kinds of things, okay, let's talk about that. That's really, that's, that's a good conversation to have. But if they simply say, that's impossible. The, uh, the, ah, okay. So you have dismissed the possibility of God 
the divine, the miraculous, the super rational. Have you turned it to the irrational now? Is that how far gone you are? You, you understand what I'm trying to say here? Uh, if, it's, if those are your premises, then of course your conclusions come out that way. How could it be otherwise? For you, if there is no God, really, because if there's no God of miracles, you're probably, if you'll be honest, you probably admit that in your mind there's probably no God, in which case, <sighs> what are you left with with Scripture? It could, it could only be man-made myth. But I reject that premise. So if that's what's driving your conclusions, then I, I, I would have to disagree with your conclusions. If you have better premises, we can t discuss the conclusions, okay? But again, from a stage three atonement perspective, I'd hope we'd be able to get along and have legitimate conversations here and not allow either party to, to thrust the other side out of the Christian community. In fact, I'll even say this. I wonder if those in the atonement stage would ask those on both other stages, is that really the question you would ask God? If you had a conversation with God about the book of Jonah, you in sta in the, in, among the, the conservatives, would your question really be, what was the species of the big fish? And where can we dig up its fossilized skeleton? And you in the liberal camp, would your question really be, what's the name and address of the real writer of this ancient myth? So I can prove that it's fiction instead of fact? Are those really the questions you'd ask? Because, I don't know, from my perspective, I was thinking of asking God a question more along these lines. Heavenly Father, what do you see that I'm running from? That I need to turn around and face more courageously? Will you help me learn from this book of Scripture to recognize whatever it is that is that that's turning me away from the missions I should be performing in life. What am I running from? Maybe I should ask God, what am I allowing my life to be swallowed up in when it should be swallowed up in service to thee and to thy children? Because usually if I'm running from something, I end up getting swallowed up in something else. And maybe at the end of the day, the question I'll ask the Lord is not who was Jonah, but in what ways am I Jonah? Because I can learn from him one way or the other. I can learn from every parable Jesus taught, as well as from every experience that Jesus lived. And I think I'll avoid dogmatism if it offends either of my brothers or sisters. And honor their perspective, honor their journey. Uh, in some ways, if I can hold, help them hold on to a belief in God, then God can introduce himself to them as a God of miracles that can do anything and everything to help their children, his children turn back to him. Nephi finally got to that point at the end of his book. When he finally says, you know what, let's quit fighting over what you think of my record. 
and just believe in Jesus. And if you do, he says kind of tongue-in-cheek, then you'll end up believing in my record because they're his words. But I'll leave that to him. And in a way, if we can simply hold on to faith in God, God will introduce himself as a God of miracles. And we can be open to whatever possibilities exist in Scripture, knowing that there are more important questions to ask than just that. Is that okay? Uh, again, I'm moved by that conversation I had with a wonderful soul that's really struggling, just needing to know, is this history or is this just a story? They sound a lot alike to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's more that we could talk about that in terms of psychology and, and, and miracle and, and the construction of scripture and, and where parables come in and abstraction perhaps being even truer than truth. Uh, there's amazing places you could go with this kind of concept. And epistemologically, how do we come to know anything? Uh, I've probably spent way too much time on this already. So if you skip through all that and just want to start in the book of Jonah, I guess I should have given you the heads up on that a half an hour ago. But as we dive in, and that's probably the right verb here, we're going to dive in with Jonah into this stormy sea to try to understand the answers to the real questions we should be asking. What uh, what am I running from? What am I allowing myself to be swallowed up in? What am I supposed to learn from all of this to become a better disciple of Christ? For those questions, the book of Job is a masterpiece. So let's, let's dive in. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, well-known story. We begin with his flight from the Lord. Verse 1 and 2 sets the stage. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, and yes, that's the same name and with the same father that was mentioned in 2 Kings. He's in the reign of Jeroboam, the second. It's a period of peace in Israel, uh, exp territorial expansion. These are the good times. We'll see similar context in the story or in the book of Micah. And Jonah, in fact, in 2 Kings, prophesies that that territorial expansion will take place. So here is this, this figure in Old Testament history. And the Lord says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that this is a prophet's role, after all, is to go cry repentance. But what should surprise us is the target audience. Wait, go to Nineveh? That great? Well, what do you mean by great? Great in population? Yes. Great in wickedness? Yes. Great in deserving the mercy of God? over my dead body, which is exactly what Jonah would prefer. You see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Yeah, that Assyrian empire. The one that's going to come bearing down on the northern kingdom, the, the territory that's expanding under King Jeroboam II. But this same Assyria that's going to come destroy the northern kingdom, also just almost destroy the southern, scatter the ten tribes until they're lost throughout the Assyrian empire. That... That great city, you want me to cry against it? No way. Now, it's interesting to know that the name Jonah means dove. And what is God offering here? If a dove is a symbol of peace, if you think about Noah sending out the dove that ultimately returns with an olive branch, ah, the violence is over. The destruction has come to an end. We're ready for a new start. Well, the Lord is sending an olive branch. 
He's sending the dove of peace to the enemy of Israel. Please, Assyrians, accept my offer of truce. Forget the white flag. I'll send the white dove. Will you accept this and change? Well, in verse 3, Jonah is not so sure about this. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And even just when you hear it, you can't help but laugh a little. And not Tom Paine's way. <laughs> the, pay, the, the laughter of, Jonah, do you really think you can flee from the presence of the Lord? Uh, he's, he's overall. <laughs> All-seeing eye. Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. Ask Adam and Eve about that. How successful were they at hiding in the bushes post-fall? But oh well, Jonah is fleeing unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa, which is a, a, a Mediterranean coastal city there in western Israel. And so a port city. He's going to be able to jump on a ship here. And sure enough, he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you think Tarshish is is out of the Lord's presence, then man, this must be the far reaches of the cosmos. Well, for a Mediterranean reader, it was. Now, we're not 100% sure where Tarshish was. Some scholars have suggested it's on the coast of Phoenicia. So we've gone down to Joppa in Israel, and we're just going to go north uh, just to kind of get out of town. Others say, oh no, it's a port on the island of Sardinia. So we're getting closer to modern-day Italy. And so he's going out there, kind of halfway across the known world. Others, and this is the prevailing view, would say, no, Tarshish or Tarshish is the southwestern corner of Spain. So you, are, you have sailed all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. Have you made it out beyond the Strait of Gibraltar where the wide Atlantic suggests that you've reached the end of the world? If you look at old maps where it just shows unending ocean filled with sea monsters, because who knows what could populate the waters beyond. Interesting. So what do we see here? We see a prophet running from the Lord, which again, <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, fleeing from his presence, I don't want him to see where I am. Well, really? you got to know better than that. Okay, fine then. I'm just going to try to run in the exact opposite direction from the place the Lord is sending me to. Nineveh is landlocked. Nineveh is east, inland. Tarshish, far west, ocean-bound. Let's get as far away as we possibly can. But the Lord has other plans. So verse 4 and 5, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Huh. Carest thou not that we perish? Remember that story in the New Testament? Hmm, maybe Jesus is more like giving signs of the prophet Jonah left and right. But the reason Jesus was sleeping was a far cry from the reason Jonah was. Even though the storms seemed to be similar, to the point that professional sailors, lifelong mariners, are sore afraid. They think this is, they're going down on this, on this trip. So all hands on deck. In fact, all eyes on God, whichever God you choose to pray to. You know, let's bring in the whole pantheon. 
and hope it can protect us from Poseidon. Now, in Jonah's case, sleeping? It's interesting that in some ways, sleep is another form of escape. And sometimes we turn to that because we don't want to have to face ourselves in the morning mirror. And if I can simply sleep and try to avoid my troubled conscience or sleep and not have to listen to the Lord's cries for me to awake and arise, then maybe I can just... Remember what we talked about earlier. This is Satan lulling you, lullaby, into a false sense of carnal security. Uh, pacifying you. There's the pacifier. Just trying to rock you to sleep. Don't wake up and realize what you're really doing here, Jonah. Just sleep through it. But then again, it also suggests something else about Jonah's mental makeup. Uh, he doesn't seem like a scaredy cat. Because some might suggest, maybe that's why he doesn't want to go to Assyria, because Assyrians were known for their brutality. We talked about this in a prior lesson as well, that when they're, get, when they're bringing people, dragging them back as prisoners of war, they were famous for using hooks in the nose and dragging you back that way. I don't know if I want to escape when I got that. You got me by a good hold. Uh, th this is a brutal... I mean, if Greece was, hey, yeah, we'll conquer you, but for the most part, we want you to just think like us, and here's some Greek philosophy. Or the Persians, yes, we want to conquer you, but we're nice, go back and build your temple. Or Rome, where it's like, yeah, we're going to conquer you, but look at Pax Romana, and as long as you're good citizens uh, or good subjects, then, then we'll allow you to we'll keep the peace. But not the Assyrians. This was a, a bloodthirsty empire, and they ruled out of violence and fear. And yet, Jonah doesn't seem to be fearful. If he can sleep through a storm with the same confidence that Christ could back on the pillow, I'm sure, sopping wet. No, it's not fear that's keeping me from the Assyrians. It's something worse in some ways. It's an emotion I probably wouldn't care to admit to you. It's how I feel about the Assyrians in general. You see, I'd rather go down with the ship. Because if I die without delivering my message of mercy, then the Assyrians will go down too. And honestly, I'd prefer that. These people are not deserving of the mercy of the God of Israel. They're not Israelites. This is one of the few places you'll see in Scripture. We've seen all kinds of places where Isaiah gives his burdens to Babylon and Moab and Ammon and Edom and everybody else. We saw that with Jeremiah and giving these messages. Amos, uh, same thing last week, right? With for three, for three transgressions, I'll make that four. And all these surrounding nations need that cry to repent. But to actually go there, to be sent on a... This is the ultimate foreign mission where everyone else got, got stateside. State of Israel, that is. Okay? Uh, go leave, but leave and preach among your mortal enemy. This is like people who are racist getting called to the exact mission among the people they most look down upon or are prejudiced against. This is someone whose background has been so scarred by a foreign people. And now I'm supposed to hold out the olive leaf? I'm supposed to be their dove? Are you kidding me? No. Turn me into a vulture rather than a dove and I'll pick their carcasses clean. They do not deserve a second chance. 
especially not from the God of Israel. So get me out of here. And he heads in the opposite direction. Talk about close-mindedness. Talk about a false sense of superiority. Are those things that he needs to overcome rather than run from or sleep through? God will see to that. So, verse 6, the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. We're calling on ours. If so be that God, yours, will think upon us that we perish not. Now again, Jonah didn't want to pray to God because it was God he was trying to avoid. Can't you just leave me below deck? Maybe he can't see through all that. But no, verse 7 and 8, they said every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. They're exploring every possibility. If nobody's going to fess up as far as whose fault is this, then let's cast lots and see where it falls. And they cast lots, and lo and behold, the lot fell upon Jonah. Hmm, I guess that can work sometimes after all. Then said they unto him, No longer sleeper, you're the cause of our oh, loss of sleep. Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. Now, they, they know whose cause, but they don't know the reasons why. So they keep peppering him with questions. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? Of what people art thou? In some ways, this story reminds me of the story of Achan. Remember his in the book of Joshua? It's, somebody, it's somebody's fault we lost the battle of Ai. We won the battle of Jericho when we shouldn't have. And then we lost the battle of Ai when that should have been an easy victory. Someone must have offended the Lord. And you remember Joshua goes through and just slowly whittles them down like uh, that tribe, everyone else dismissed. Uh, that family within the tribe, everyone else dismissed. And the lump in Achan's throat's getting bigger and bigger the closer it narrows down on him. Well, that's exactly what's happening here with Jonah. It's on you. It's your fault that we lost, that we're, that we're suffering and struggling and, and about to perish. Honestly, it makes me wonder sometimes, when I see good things happening, do I deserve any share of the credit? Or when I see bad things happening, do I deserve any share of the blame? I remember that hitting me on my mission with the massive inactivity, inactivity problem I saw and just thought about what could be done by way of home teaching, visiting teaching. And I actually challenged the members in one, war, in one branch Look around and see who's here and try to remember who isn't. And if the person you're assigned to home teach or, visiting or visit teach is here, do you deserve any credit at all? And if they're not, do you deserve even a particle of blame? Don't take all the credit and please don't take all the blame. But Jonah, is this on you? Well, it is. But what's the solution? Now that we've noticed the problem, what's the solution to this problem? That's still the question. This is the guy that's making our voyage on the good ship Zion so tempest-tossed. But what do we do to fix things? Don't get off, we would say. Just change. And that's their hope as well. Verse 9 and 10. He said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now, other translations clarify that. I worship Jehovah. And part of me wants to say, oh, do you? Really? Is this how you're showing that worship of him? That reverence? That godly fear? I don't know. 
But Jonah claims that, I worship Jehovah, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Which, again, should make you think, well, if you knew he made the sea, then <laughs> why are you running on the sea? The sea is no escape. The Lord is still over it. Okay? Which, again, suggests, what, you want to die? Maybe so. Later, he's going to wish for it repeatedly. Anyway, then were the men exceedingly afraid. It's like, mm, have we heard about this Lord, this Jehovah, the God of Israel? Is he really, truly the God of the sea and the land? Because we're about to be swallowed up by him. So they're exceedingly afraid, and they said to Jonah, Why hast thou done this? Great question. Is, does he have the honesty and openness to fully confess? Now the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. That was obvious, because he had told them. What's interesting here is these sailors, these pagan fishermen, they seem to have a better grasp on the God of Israel than even Jonah does. They, he, Jonah says he fears them. Well, they fear him in a much more visceral sense. We've, he has to be honored. In some ways, how can he be placated? What can we offer him in hopes that he will calm the sea that he created? That's their question in verse 11. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee? that the sea may be calm unto us. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And Jonah says to them, and again, this doesn't suggest any cowardice on his part, rather some interesting but misplaced courage. His advice, take me up, cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So again, no fear on his part. I would rather die in the sea then take my trip across the land to cry repentance to a people that I don't want to repent. Because I don't want them to be forgiven. I don't want them to survive. If my death can lead to theirs, then so be it. This is an interesting twist on this, the end of the story of Samson, right? Let's bring down the temple on us all. Wow. This, this is some obstinate, some stubbornness, some hardness of heart. And as compared to that, the hearts of the sailors were much softer. In fact, verse 13 and 14, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. They did everything in their power to try to save the cause of the problem. Isn't that amazing? Even though they knew he was guilty, we're doing all in our power to give you another chance. Isn't that what God sent Jonah to Nineveh to do? He's on the receiving end of it. At the hand of non-Israelites, pagans, they're, don't you see, Jonah, they're more righteous than you. They're more merciful than you. They're fulfilling the mission I sent you on. See what it feels like to be on your end? You are Nineveh here. Well, what do they do? They row hard, but they can't get there. They could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Interesting that there are those out there that with all the right intent, want to help us avoid the consequences of our sins in some non-repentant way. They help us justify our actions. They help us rationalize away our fears. When really what we need is someone with the courage to be honest enough with us and open enough, enough with us to let us know you are, you are drowning in your own self-justification. You're drowning in the consequences of your sins. And the only way to, to come up for air is to repent. 
I, I'm not going to give you the easy way out. And so what do these men do? They honor Jonah's wishes. But before they do, look at the next verse, they cried unto the Lord and said, and that's the, the cap, all capitals, Lord. This is Jehovah they're crying. That's the real God here? That's your God? Well, then for the moment, he's our God now too. He's the only one that can do anything about this. So they cry unto Jehovah and they said, we beseech thee, O Lord, O Jehovah. We beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, Jehovah, hast done as it pleased thee. So unlike Jonah, they are unafraid to call upon the Lord. In a way, he has become their Lord as well. Though that was never Jonah's intent either. The story continues, verse 15 and 16. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. <sighs> okay. But even still, what do the men do? The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. And those are all things Jonah should have been doing. <laughs> this is such an ironic book. It, it flips everything on its head because you have these pagan mariners that are, seem to be more closely tied to the God of Israel than the Israelite prophet that's supposed to be. They are paying their vows. They are offering their sacrifices. They are fearing, worshiping, honoring him in ways that Jonah refused to do. And again, a book in the Hebrew Bible that makes non-Hebrews look better than Hebrews? Amazing. Jesus would have a field day with that in the New Testament when he talks about a good Samaritan, that to every Jewish ear, that's an oxymoron. Or when he talks about uh, Naaman the Syrian leper being healed, when I'm sure there were lepers in Israel that could have been. Or the widow of Zarephath, non-Israelite, that Elijah goes and helps feed, when I'm sure there were a lot of starving widows in Judah or Israel. Again, those are fighting words. That's when the Jews want to push him off the edge of the cliff in Nazareth and put him to his death. But Jesus had a great way of popping the bubble of pride and self-centeredness. The sense of superiority that people of his day felt. Well, the book of Jonah in many ways is meant to do the same. How accepting are we of others? And in the, in the case of Jonah, how creative is God at trying to help us see things his way? Well, we'll see that creativity manifested. The last verse of chapter 1. Verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. We don't know exactly what kind again. Here it doesn't call it the whale. It's just a great fish. And if it's prepared by the Lord, he can prepare it any way he wants. The ocean is still a mystery to humanity to this day, ironically. But this great fish was sent by the Lord to swallow up Jonah. I told you, you'd get swallowed up by something if you're trying to run from the Lord. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There again is the sign of the prophet Jonah, which the Lord himself would use as his own proof. I will come forth on the third day as well. Now, again, symbolically, Add the symbolic to the literal instead of having to choose between the two. And you see water as a symbol of chaos. Remember creation account? 
the, the, the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the deep. So there's chaos. It's always shifting, especially in a storm, right? And you think of this sea monster in the midst of chaos. Uh, in the book of Job and elsewhere, we talked about Leviathan and this mighty sea monster. Again, the personification, the embodiment of chaos, surrounded by chaos. That's why we tend to live on the land. <laughs> okay, let's separate that good gospel ground from the shifting currents of chaos. And because Jonah has refused to recognize the mercy of the Lord that's intended for even people that are his enemy, love thine enemy, pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you and drag you by the nose back to Nineveh. Love them, Jesus will say. Forgive them, Jehovah will say. Cry repentance to them, Jonah. At least so they have that chance. But oh no. He would prefer to be swallowed up by chaos itself than to allow an enemy to emerge from the chaos of their own sin. Sin is hard. Sin is a fractured reality. Sin is a negative coping skill that leaves you worse rather than better when you're trying to cope with the challenges of life. Do you not understand that all of Nineveh is swallowed up in chaos? Do you have no empathy for those that have not seen the light of day, spiritually speaking, and instead are swallowed up in the consequences of their own sins. They're swallowed up by darkness and ignorance and chaos. Remember we keep talking about enforced empathy in the Old Testament? Here's another example. If you cannot feel for them, Jonah, then let me give you a time to feel like them. And maybe that will wake you up out of this self-imposed slumber. How's that, sleeper? Well, it wakes him up to all kinds of things. And in chapter 2, Jonah repents. In fact, he offers praise and gratitude, which he should have been doing all along. The chapter 2 is a masterpiece. Uh, and notice how he begins it. Verse 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God, which he should have been doing. What he refused to do on board ship, uh, he's now doing in the belly of the beast. He prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. You see, he had finally hit rock bottom, down beneath the surface, encompassed about by this chaos. And he's finally looking upward and turning his heart to God. And God is still reachable, even from the depths of the sea, from chaos itself, from the depths of hell, which is how Jonah will describe it. Do you remember those old cell phone commercials? I can't remember which cell phone company would do it, but it'd be someone in the strangest of places, or they'd be in the back of like a moving van, and they'd keep saying, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And the idea was in the, most, in, in the places where reception should be impossible. Uh, can you hear me now? You can? Wow. This cell phone company has coverage like you wouldn't believe. Well, can you picture Jonah in the belly of the, of the fish? Can you hear me now? Actually, I think God was the one asking that question. Jonah, can you finally hear me now? He's getting it. So he says in verse 2 and 3, 
I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. I really have hit rock bottom, but now I'm back in contact with the rock. Okay. He heard me out of the belly of hell. And that's how he's feeling there. Out of hell itself, Sheol, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. You can hear me now. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. No matter how far we've fallen, even when we're swallowed up by the consequences of our sins, God can still hear us. And more importantly, he still wants to. Call to me out of hell itself. You haven't fallen too far. You haven't gone too deep. Verse 4, Then said I, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. You see the focal point there? Where is he looking? Where is his mind's eye straining to envision, even from hell itself, the temple? Ah, Think about those in spirit prison. And the only hope they have at redemption is by looking toward the holy temple. Think of Ezekiel's amazing idea when the Lord says, show them the temple first so they recognize where they don't measure up. Remember this one? And then once they realize how far they've fallen, show them the temple again. Because the temple is not the problem. Your sins are. The temple is actually the solution. And if it alerts you to where you're falling short, it will also empower you to overcome those weaknesses. And so it would be for Jonah. Keep your eye on the holy temple. Next, verse 5 and 6. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. That's how deep this is soaking into him. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. What's so beautiful about this? On the one hand, for for Jonah's sake, you can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) No matter where you are, God is aware. You cannot outrun the Lord of the deep. You can't sink beyond you can't sink beyond his saving reach. And that's important for Jonah to know. But even the way he put it, remember when we were talking about Job and how much he wrestled with this his innocent, undeserved suffering? And we mentioned that in some ways it gives you a glimpse into the mortal side of Jesus, suffering in Gethsemane or agonizing on the cross. In a way, though Jonah deserved this and Jesus did not, can you picture Jesus as he's going to the grave and as he is trapped in the tomb for a period? The waters compassed me round. The depths closed around me. Could you picture Jesus with the weeds wrapped around his head. There's a watery crown of thorns, if I ever saw one. But then to have brought his life from corruption, this is resurrection. No wonder the symbol and sign of the prophet Jonah is so powerful to Jesus. 
I, corruption from, becomes now incorruption. He has brought up my life. Then verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. I'd been trying to forget him. He won't be forgotten. My prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. There he says it again. You see, even when we can't enter the Lord's presence, our prayers can. And the Lord is listening as we remember, as we cry unto that holy temple. It reminds me of the Lord still in Eden, even when Adam and Eve had been cast out, but calling to them out of the midst of the garden. I'm still here. You can still speak to me and I can still speak to you. The same is happening here for Jonah, teaching truth, making a way of deliverance, preparing for a change and a return. And what was the Lord's message? Jonah says it himself in an incredible moment of self-awareness, of beautiful realization. These are his, Jonah's words, but they might as well be the Lord's. Verse 8, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And isn't that what Jonah's been feeling this whole time? Enforced empathy? You won't understand the chaos in which the Ninevites, the people of Assyria, are drowning, then drown in your own. Don't think, don't want to let other people change. You don't want to try to help them. Watch these pagan sailors rowing desperately for shore. Learn from them. Be more like them. Because if you can't, if you can't be merciful to others, how can I be merciful to you? If you will not feel empathy, then I can offer you none. If you observe lying vanities, and that's such a powerful descriptor, a vanity? Come right back to it. If you can't accept it, if you can't observe it, if that's what all you care about is lying vanities, then I'm sorry, you just forsook your own mercy. That's the Sermon on the Mount. With what measure you meet, it shall be meted unto you again. So be careful how you judge others. This is the law of the harvest. Uh, this is you will be judged in the manner you judge other people. President Kimball gave a great quote about this where he talked about those that will not forgive others have burned the bridge over which they must pass if they ever hope to come back to God. The bridge is forgiveness for us all. I, that's my only hope in returning to God. And yet if I can't forgive others, then what makes me think God should forgive me? Well, because I'm better than they are. I deserve the forgiveness. Oh, how's that for a lying vanity? Vanity? You really think you're better? Just because you're an Israelite, Jonah? You're, this whole book is proving that you're worse than Assyrians and pagan sailors and who, who else knows? I'm sure there's some great saints out in Tarshish if you never made it there. And they would have made you look bad too. No, that's vanity. And it's a lying vanity to make you think that you deserve forgiveness when someone else doesn't. These are the things we need to wrestle with when we have been offended. And when we feel righteous indignation and justified in wanting to hold someone else to justice. Yeah, they probably deserve to be punished. So do you. Wait, really? Yeah. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat and it's sinking, Jonah. So turn to the Lord of 
the wind and the waves, and pray for him that he can say, peace, be still. And not just loud enough for you to hear, but for everyone on board. Anything less than that, Jonah, is a vanity, and it's lying to you. Do not forsake the mercy I'm trying to give to you by denying that mercy that I'm trying to give to others. He then says in verse 9 and 10, with that realization in mind, ready to extend mercy to others, Jonah says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Thank you for this realization. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. That's exactly what the Lord needed to hear from this penitent prophet. And so the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Oh, this is a sacrifice in response to God's commands. This is a gift of, th of thanksgiving and of praise. Oh, perhaps not unlike what the pagan mariners had been doing just a few days ago. But what happens here? The Lord is offering salvation to Jonah. Like he offered salvation to the people on the ship, like he's trying to offer to the people of Nineveh. And anyone with an open enough heart to receive it, here it comes. And the Lord offers it. We will see that in chapter 3. Ah, where J Jonah cries repentance. And a lot faster than Jonah himself responded to the Lord's pleas, the Ninevites do. Verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. By the way, that's the exact same phrase that started chapter 1. So can we just do a redo, a retake, and start this thing over? Let's do it, okay? The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Jonah, this is your second chance, which is exactly what I'm trying to give the Ninevites. Honor that. Verse 3 and 4, So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He finally did it the Lord's way. <laughs> okay. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Now not three days to cross it. Now no city was that large in the ancient Middle East. But three days probably to crisscross it and try to make the announcement among every possible hearer that it's time to change. So sure enough, Jonah begins to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, on the one hand, I really want to give Jonah the benefit of the doubt. That maybe the, that time in the great fish was sufficient to truly change his heart. So that what he's doing really is pounding the pavement for three solid days, speaking to everyone who with ears to hear, you've got to change. You've got to repent because otherwise this consequence is going to come. And I'm trying to save you. The Lord, my God, the God of my people, is the God of your people too, if you'll have him. And he's given you this chance. Like I said, I want to give Jonah the benefit of the doubt. But I know what he was like in chapter 1. And I know what he became in chapter 2, but only under duress. And I know what he's going to be in chapter 4. Spoiler alert. It's not much to see. And so I do worry, is he really going above and beyond? Or, or is he going below and beneath? 
Because if you actually just focus, if this is all he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Was there a call to repentance in there? Or just a prophecy of their impending doom? I'm just going to tell you your consequences. I'm not going to tell you how to avoid them. Now again, is that reading too much and just assuming the worst about Jonah? Perhaps. But that's all we have on record of him actually saying. Uh, is, and is he hoping that the 40 days will come and go and he'll get to watch the fireworks as if he were up on a hilltop watching Sodom and Gomorrah go up in flame down below? Again, wait for chapter 4 and that's basically what we'll see. But 40 days, from the Lord's perspective, that is merciful. 40 days reminds us of the flood. And 40 days of cleansing water, rain. 40 days reminds us of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Yeah, wander, wander, die, wander, die. But also a generation to prepare and purify themselves to enter the promised land. 40 days reminds us of Moses fasting on Sinai. And then doing it again. Of Elijah fasting on the way to Sinai. Jesus fasting on the Mount of Temptations in preparation for his mortal mission. Forty days? Yeah, there's a great symbol for purification, preparation, repentance. The question is, will they use it? And I guess another question for Jonah is, do you even want them to? Or do you just want these 40 days to pass so you can watch the fireworks? But how do the Assyrians react? Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. It was that easy. They proclaimed a fast. That's a good way to use your 40 days, right? Moses, right Elijah, right Jesus. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And remember sackcloth and ashes. This is the sign of mourning, of godly sorrow, of removing my robes of pride and putting on the garments of humility. And who's doing it? Everyone, from the greatest down to the least. Honestly, in just a few verses, this has played out to be the most successful mission probably in Israelite history. Uh, the most hardened enemy, and yet they're completely softened. And the most reluctant prophet, but the most successful one? Wow, how's that work? But there's the irony. You'd think that Jonah would be thrilled. It worked. I'm the greatest missionary in Israelite history. Eh, not bad. The field really was white, all ready to harvest. I mean, look at verse 6 and 7. Word came unto the king of Nineveh. So there's the greatest among them that we would have seen back in verse 5. And he arose from his throne, so let's remove myself from this seat of self-conceit. And he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth. No more pride, now just humility. He sat in ashes, and better to sit in ashes by choice than to be consumed in ashes by consequence. Remember, the Lord will have a humble people, President Benson said. You can either choose to be humble or you will be compelled to be. You get ash either way. Do you want to be swallowed up in the conflagration of your own sins? Or do you want to choose to confess and forsake and humble yourself instead of being humbled? Choose to kneel instead of brought to your knees. 
And the king of Nineveh wisely decides. And he wasn't alone in it. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. We're even going to make your animals fast. Let them not feed nor drink water. This is a community fast because it's been community sins. So many of the sins that we saw Amos decry, that we'll soon see Micah decry, are social sins. Community iniquity. And if we're sinning against each other horizontally, then we're in this together and we need to fast together as a community. Throughout much of American history, they, pronounced, they proclaimed community days, national days of fasting, of prayer, of contrition, of thanksgiving. We're all in this thing together. Then verse 8 and 9, the decree continues. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way. And remember, turn is the word for repent. So turn away. Turn from the evil way. Turn from the violence that is in their hands. How's that for social sin? How's that for exactly the kinds of things that other people feared the Assyrians for? Violence. And then this thought, this beautiful thought they were laying hold of. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Now, as usual, any hint that God might be in need of repentance was a concern for Joseph Smith as he's reading this. And so he quickly changes it in the JST. No, 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 it's not God needing repentance. It's the people that need repentance. So the JST says, we will repent, that's what the king said, and turn unto God, but he will turn away from us his fierce anger. What I love about the king's approach is how submissive it was. It wasn't an automatic, oh yeah, we go through the steps of repentance and then we hit enter and then what prints out? Our forgiveness certificate. Because we checked every box and so that's how it works. No, it was submission to the level of we will do everything in our power to show how brokenhearted we are. We will come before you in sackcloth and ashes, but we know we're in no position to make demands of you. I left my throne because I know that's where you belong. That's the seat you deserve to sit in. But who knows? Maybe, just maybe, the Lord will be merciful. Who can tell? I love this penitent king that's not presuming upon the grace of God, but, but throwing himself at the Savior's feet, we can put it that way, and trusting that he's in good hands, whatever comes of it. That's real repentance. That's true contrition. And as a result, it's not just who can tell. Well, the Lord can tell, and he will tell you. As often as my people repent, I will forgive them. Oh, and so he does in verse 10. God saw their works, all these righteous works of repentance, that they turned from their evil way, and God turned as well. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. He did it not. Again, the JST, God turned away the evil that he said he would bring upon them. You see how repentance is met with repentance? In the Lord's way, our repentance is turning from sin. The Lord's repentance is turning away the consequences. But he can't do his part until we do ours. Justice demands that. 
But mercy offers us that, that hope. Just turn. I'll be turning too. And here is where you would expect a glorious chapter 4 with nothing but rejoicing on the part of Israel's most successful missionary in history. Right? Isn't that what you'd hope? Well, no. Chapter 2 was a clear moment of contrition, of openness, of praise, of gratitude to God. But that was for Jonah. That was Jonah offering gratitude for the mercy that Jonah himself received. How's he going to react when his mortal enemy, the one that he seems to have cried repentance reluctantly, and even then not even cried repentance, just cried consequence, leaving the people to figure it out? Like, how do we avoid that? Oh, maybe we change our ways. Glad somebody thought that one through. But chapter 4, Jonah's real reaction is the opposite of what you would have hoped for from him. You remember when he flew from the Lord and jumped on that ship to Tarshish. Well, we talk about fight and flight. And when you're in this moment of alarm, what am I going to do? Well, chapter 1 was the flight. Chapter 4 is the fight. And Jonah's angry with God that he would allow this to happen. Verse 1, it displeased Jonah. In fact, it displeased him exceedingly. He was angry. In fact, he was very angry. See the intensification of these adjectives? He's ticked. And why? Because you just had the most successful mission in Israelite history? Come on, Jonah. What's the problem here? Well, he tells you, verse 2 and 3, he prayed unto the Lord, but this time not in submission, this time in anger. He says, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now that's the most shocking thing you'll ever read. You so, you, tone is everything here. Because if I took these verses out of context and just said, here's someone praying to the Lord about the things they know God to be then this would be one of the most moving scriptures you could ever see. Someone recognizing that God is gracious? Someone recognizing his mercy? Slow to anger, great kindness. Someone who always turns away consequences the moment we turn away from sin. This is one of the most, we could call it a doxology, a praise for the Lord. That's what it should be if you put it in someone else's mouth. But coming from Jonah's lips at this moment, he's not praising God for these attributes. He's bitter that this is the kind of God that God is. How dare you be merciful? Remember Hosea, what's he named his daughter? Loruhama, no mercy for you. That's what Jonah wanted to name the entire Assyrian Empire. No mercy for you. You're not God's people. There's lo Ruhama, there's lo Ami. Because Jezreel, you have sown and this is what you're going to reap. Well, no, they changed their planting. They repented. And what do you reap when you sow contrition? You reap forgiveness. And Jonah's like, that's the problem. I knew that about you. Why do you think I was trying to run? Why do you think I wanted to go down with the ship? I was kind of hoping your mercy would go down with me. I was hoping that Assyria's hopes would be buried in the sea right alongside me. Why do you think I'm ready to die all over again? And I wish I had the first time. 
This is shocking and a, a, a deplorable amount of hardness, of lack of empathy, of understanding of mercy on Jonah's part. This is not the kind of Israelite prophet that most books in the Hebrew Bible are trying to extol. They're holding up that this is the, the negative, the anti-hero, instead of the hero you would expect. And the irony there is it's Jonah saying to the Lord, I told you so. This was my saying when I left my country. Now, there's two ways to take this. One would be, I knew you were going to do this anyway. You didn't need my help. You didn't have to make me go on this practically eternal voyage to come to a place that you were probably going to forgive anyway. But that's a total misunderstanding of God's justice. You see, here's the irony. Jonah kind of misunderstands God's justice as well as God's mercy. But in his overemphasis on mercy, he's robbing justice as if to say, you weren't going to do anything negative to them anyway. Really? Did you not think I was going to do anything negative to you? Did you really think? Just a storm, and that's fine. I can sleep through it because God's merciful. He's going to let me flee. He probably has, I don't know, a hotel already picked out for me in Tarshish. That's how merciful he is. No, that's overswinging the pendulum in that direction and thinking that we really can afford to presume upon his grace. And no matter what we do, with or without repentance, this is the opposite when he was, I'm not going to cry repentance. I'm just going to tell them their consequences. 40 days and you're destroyed. Well, this is the opposite. Whether or not you repent, 40 days you're probably not going to be destroyed because God is so stinking kind and forgiving. Either way, you are underestimating God's perfect balance of justice and mercy. And that justice is waiting on us to repent. Mercy right alongside. And since justice is holding mercy at bay, I want you to move forward but at the right time, in the right way. And so I'm waiting. That's one, one thing that Jonah might mean by that. You were going to do it anyway. You didn't need my help. <laughs> no, they needed your help. They needed to know they needed to repent. The other option here, instead of you didn't need me to go, was darn it, that's why you sent me and that's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that if they did repent, then you'd forgive them. I understand your justice in this, in this approach, in this interpretation. But I, I, I'm more afraid of your mercy. I'm okay with your justice. I was hoping they'd get it. I was okay with me getting it. But that's my biggest fear. That you are so merciful to all of your children that you're not willing to confine it to your chosen people. How's that for pride? How's that for self-centeredness? How's that for ethnocentricity? How's that for xenophobia? Take your word, whatever you want to call it. We're better than others. How's that for a lying vanity, Jonah? Well, verse 4, the Lord responds, and other than the twice-repeated command to just go to Nineveh and cry repentance, this is the first time the Lord actually speaks to Jonah. It's really short, just a six-word question. He says, Doest thou well to be angry? Which is such an interesting question. Oh, you seem really emotional right now, Jonah. That's okay. I, 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 I'm a God that weeps. I'm not a God without body parts or passions. I've got passions. I feel things too. 
I'm just curious, Jonah, is that the correct emotion to allow yourself to feel right here? Honestly, it reminds me of when James and John fully live into their nickname of Boanerges, Sons of Thunder, because thunder comes with lightning, and this is a time they wanted to call down lightning, fire from heaven, to destroy a Samaritan village. Whoa, what horrific death sentence offense were they guilty of? Well, they, they wouldn't let Jesus spend the night. And Jesus is like, seriously, guys? Sons of thunder indeed. The way he puts it is profound. He says, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Which is so interesting. Do you, do you even recognize what emotion is driving this? What spirit is causing you to feel or react in this way? Because this is a spirit of vengeance, not of forgiveness. This is a spirit of anger, not even of righteous indignation. Those two can sometimes be confused. <laughs> but no, I know the difference, believe me. Let's just go to a different village, okay? Fire from heaven, are you serious? You see, remember DNC 121, that you, we, are, we do need to reprove betimes with sharpness. But when? When moved upon by the Holy Ghost? when that's the right spirit that you are of? That's why I love the Lord's question to Jonah. Doest thou well to be, and then fill in the blank with your emotion. Is now the right time to be angry, Jonah? I, I, I was thinking joy would be a more appropriate emotion here. If you're dealing with things, and whatever emotion comes, just cross-examine the emotion for a moment. I know that's easier said than done, believe me. But if you can ask yourself the question, do I do well to feel this way? Because perhaps there's a more appropriate emotion under the circumstances. Perhaps if I change my perspective on what I'm going through, I can actually feel gratitude instead of anger. Perhaps if I stop justifying and rationalizing my sin, then it would be well to feel humble instead of feeling offended or justified or whatever it might be. It's a great question to ask yourself. What's the emotion moving me right now? And is it the right one? Well, it was not the right one for Jonah. But verse 5 and 6, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth. Oh, a little feast of tabernacles for him, huh? And sat under it in the shadow. I mean, remember, we're landlocked here, and so beating down the desert sun, and he wants to have a little shade. Why? Because <laughs> I'm going to be here for a while. I've got fireworks to watch. He said, I'll, sat, I'll sit under the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Sounds like he's still holding out hope for destruction. Now, the Lord has an interesting response. And because he's so slow to anger, because he's so full of mercy... What does he do here for this, this prophet that's starting to sweat under, under the sun? The Lord God prepared a gourd, just a little plant. He made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. Misplaced as that grief might be. Now a new emotion comes. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Now... Oh, so interesting, because what's the Lord doing here? I want to see the fireworks come down, but I don't want to, I want them to burn, but I don't want to get sunburned while I watch. So let me set up some things and put some palm fronds up there or something and just hope I can get out of the beating rays of the sun. And the Lord's like, oh, I can do something better than that. Your attempt to get out of the sun, 
<laughs> is pretty pathetic compared to what I can offer you. You want a real covering? Remember, that's the word for atonement. You want me to really cover you and give you a covert from storm and from rain? I already did that in the boat. To cover you from the heat of the sun? Those were all symbols Isaiah used to describe the temple, right? Where Jonah's eye should have been and where it was in chapter 2, wrapped up with weeds around the head. So many powerful things all flowing together here. But here he is now being covered by the Lord, the gourd here. In some ways, Jonah, don't you see what I'm doing for you? It's what I did for you on the boat. It's what I did for you in the belly of the beast. It's what I'm trying to do for the Assyrians. I'm simply giving them what I gave you. And ironically, they're actually more deserving of it than you are. You haven't repented in round number two. I'm glad you did with round number one. But round number two, it's not looking so good. But even here, I'll be merciful. Slow to anger, full of mercy, long-suffering, kindness. You should be grateful I'm that way. It's benefiting you. It's meant to benefit the Assyrians also. But what happens next? Verse 7 and 8. What happens when we take away that covering? Which is exactly what Jonah was trying to do to the, the people of Nineveh. Verse 7 and 8 answers the question. God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day. And it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. This whole story is full of things God is preparing. Okay? The great fish, or the storm at sea, the great fish, the, the gourd, the worm, the east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Man, Jonah, you are melodramatic. I mean, you, you want to die like every turn. At first, you, wanted, you would rather die than let God be merciful to them. And now you'd rather die because God isn't being merciful to you? Do you see how two-sided this is? How hypocritical? That you want a covering that's only big enough to shade you, not big enough to shade anyone else. You see, if God is the gourd and he's covering you, He's helped you come out from under the beating rays of the sun. That's what I'm trying to offer the Ninevites. And what does that make you then, Jonah? If God is the gourd, I guess you're the worm, aren't you? This puny little worm of the flesh. And yet you're trying to gnaw through the mercy of God? And now you're chewing him out for even offering it? Hungry little worm, aren't you? There's so many powerful principles here in this book. But what is God trying to get Jonah to feel? Empathy. He's even enforcing it once again. Don't you get it? You might as well be back in the fish. We have the deep. Here we have the mountain. There it's the cold water. Here it's the hot sun. God will try everything. He'll cross the spectrum. I'm doing everything within my power to cry repentance to you, who's supposed to be out crying repentance to others. Don't you get it? Now in verse 9, God speaks again. And again he has a question about emotion. 
He says to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? I mean, were you right to feel that strong emotion of anger toward the Ninevites, toward me, now toward the gourd? We've got some anger management issues here, Jonah. But Jonah responds defiantly. Yes, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Wow. In the face of God repeating his earlier question, is this the right emotion? What spirit is moving you? Jonah gives even more evidence that it's the wrong spirit behind him. Again, doubling down on this, on this anger, this, this answer, this stubbornness. I'm, he's harder to change than the wicked Assyrians. All it took was him with this token, hey, better watch out, 40 days. And they're on, at an instant ready to change everything. But not Jonah. Again, we are reversing things. Then verse 10 and 11, the story ends. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd? That's the target of your mercy? The only thing that you feel like deserves it? This plant? For the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow? You didn't do a thing. It came up in a night and perished in a night. It wasn't there before. You made your own little puny booth. I offered you something, and then I took it away. It's me. Do you not see my hand here? And then the ultimate question, with which he ends the book. He doesn't even give Jonah a chance to answer it. He leaves that for us. But his question that still hangs in the air millennia later, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. I mean, I'm even thinking about the animals. I mean, they fasted after all. Even they wore sackcloth and ashes. Are you even worse than a, a brute beast? Uh, there's the worm again, I guess. But you hear that haunting question? There's more than six score thousand people there. Great city filled with people that I greatly love, even though they don't claim me yet. If they just had the chance, they'd change. You've seen that. They're only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. Why do you think I sent you there to help them find it? And you did, and they did. This is a happy ending. It should have been. If you would have allowed happiness to be your emotion instead of anger, so let's go back to that ultimate question. Shouldn't I spare Nineveh like I spared you? Shouldn't I shade them like I shaded you? Shouldn't I spare them from chaos the way I brought you out of it? Jonah, what are you swallowed up in? Pride? Anger? Vengeance? Hatred? And what are you running from? A God of mercy? A God who loves your enemies, even if you don't? This is such a profound book that ends with the, one of the most profound of questions. But before we leave it behind, and before we, or not even before, as we wrestle with our own answer, since we're the ones that are left to respond to it, can I share something with you about the book of Jonah I learned years ago from one of my favorite little books called The Peace Giver. James Farrell wrote it, uh, and it's a masterpiece. It's, he was part of the Arbinger Institute, 
See Terry Warner, Bonds That Make Us Free. This is a great think tank. As they try to help people work through conflict, whether that's geopolitical, whether that's within corporations and companies, whether that's within families, whether that's between us and God, this, the principles are all the same. And in this beautiful little book, he teaches us how God is trying to give us peace and reconcile us. He talks in it about the story of Jonah. And he points out something I'd never seen before. I was so grateful for this insight. It's that same book that gave us such great insight into the story of Abigail when we studied her back in the life of David the king. But in this particular one, uh, he points out that the book of Jonah is arranged as a chiasmus. Remember that? The X where you work your way in and then work your way back out is the most complex form of Hebrew poetry. But think about it big picture wise. It goes A, B, C, and then works its way back out, C, B, A. The A begins, the Lord commands Jonah to preach against the wicked Ninevites. B, what comes? Jonah sins, not wanting Nineveh to be saved. Then C, Jonah repents, and the Lord saves Jonah. That's chapters 1 and 2. But then 3 and 4, here's the second C. Nineveh repents, and the Lord saves Nineveh. Then work out to B. Jonah sins again, not wanting Nineveh to be saved again. And then work your way back out to A. The Lord asks Jonah a question. Should not I spare Nineveh? I mean, obviously his answer was yes, and that's why he sent him there to begin with. So the beginning and the end of the story, it comes full circle. There's the repetition. But again, the power of chiasmus is as it works its way in, it works its way back out and brings things full circle, it circles back and actually points to the middle, the climax, since that's the high point, the immediate repetition that's supposed to rivet your attention. And what is the midpoint? Again, big picture, Jonah repents and the Lord saves Jonah, and Nineveh repents and the Lord saves Nineveh. But actually there's something even tighter than that. In the exact middle, of the four chapter book of Jonah with the same, almost the exact same number of verses before it as after it comes the ultimate answer to the Lord's own question at the end. This is how Brother Farrell encapsulates it. He says, it's no accident that the very center statement of the book of Jonah, which appears in the middle of the center elements of the chiasm with 24 verses preceding it and 23 verses following, it reads this, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Remember we talked about that passage? That's the dead center. That's the bullseye of the book of Jonah. And so Brother Pharaoh goes on. Jonah sits in that booth observing lying vanities. He has forgotten his own prior sin. He has forgotten the mercy extended to him by the mariners who tried to spare him even when they knew he was the cause of their troubles. How's that for loving thine enemy? He has forgotten the ultimate mercy of the Lord, who delivered him, even though he didn't deserve it. And he is therefore blind to his own Ninevahness, to how he himself is Nineveh. Failing to see mercifully, his heart, mind, and eyes are lying to him. All he can see is that he's right entitled, deserving, observing lying vanities. He is in danger of forsaking his own mercy and feeling no personal mercy. He is locked in despair.
That captures the book of Jonah about as well as anything I've ever seen. It's Jonah with his lying vanities. It's Jonah forsaking his own mercy because he's angry that God would have the gall to be merciful to someone else. I think the worst thing about Jonah is that I see myself in him in my worst moments. That I need the Lord to walk me through, to swallow me up and then spit me out again and hope that I wake up from my slumber and change my perspective and realize that I better be grateful for his mercy toward others because it's the only hope I have. There's one other piece of literature. I quoted from Peacegiver. Can I quote from something a little older? To try to give one last illustration of one of the principles I hope we're learning from the book of Jonah. This beautiful little history, story, whatever you want, to, want it to be. This is a poem uh, by Edward Rowland Sill called The Fool's Prayer. And I love it. Because in some ways, if Thomas Paine was trying to make Jonah into the jester uh, and say that, oh, these biblical comedians finally <laughs> couldn't keep a straight face and they're just throw out the whole Bible on this one. Or if you hold on to it, at least fight against each other. And that will tear apart the body of Christ itself. And I'll still win even when, when you're holding on to your belief. <laughs> Great. Well, if Jonah is the key to that as far as Thomas Paine is concerned, in which case he turns Jonah into a jester, we'll learn something from the jester here. Because in this poem, the fool's prayer, it's the court jester that is the fool. The royal feast was done. The king sought some new sport to banish care. And to his jester cried, Sir fool, kneel now and make for us a prayer. The jester doffed his cap and bells and stood the mocking court before. They could not see the bitter smile behind the painted grin he wore. He bowed his head and bent his knee upon the monarch's silken stool. His pleading voice arose, O Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. No pity, Lord, could change the heart from red with wrong to white as wool. The rod must heal the sin, but Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. Tis not by guilt the onward sweep of truth and right, O Lord, we stay. Tis by our follies that so long we hold the earth from heaven away. These clumsy feet, still in the mire, go crushing blossoms without end. These hard, well-meaning hands we thrust among the heartstrings of a friend. The ill-timed truth we might have kept, who knows how sharp it pierced and stung. The word we had not sense to say, who knows how grandly it had rung. Our faults no tenderness should ask. The chastening stripes must cleanse them all. But for our blunders, oh, in shame, before the eyes of heaven we fall. Earth bears no balsam for mistakes. Men crown the knave and scourge the tool that did his will. But thou, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. The room was hushed. In silence rose the king and sought his gardens cool. 
and walked apart and murmured low, Be merciful to me, a fool. Who's laughing now, Thomas Paine? If you intended Jonah to be your jester, his story tells us that it is only the foolish that do not recognize their need for God's mercy. And so this fool, this court jester in Sill's poem, realizes that, humbles himself, and in such a beautifully heartfelt prayer, begs God for mercy, to the point that even the king leaves his throne, doffs his royal robes, puts on in sackcloth and ashes, and there in the garden's cool realizes who the real fool has always been. Oh, doubting Thomas, what were you supposed to learn from Jonah if you just got through your laughter? What are you running from? What did you get swallowed up in when you should have been swallowed up in the love of God? What did you learn? I will forever be grateful for the book of Jonah and its power in my life, its wake-up call, its deliverance from the deep. I'm grateful for a God of mercy, compassion, love. That's a God of history. That's a God I've come to know. And I'm grateful that the book of Jonah has taught it to me. Jonah is followed by the book of Micah. And Micah has incredible lessons to teach us as well. Seven short chapters is all we get. But like I said at the beginning of this week's lesson, there are truths here worth, worth everything that he said. It's, and, I, and I mentioned there's one verse in particular, we'll get there soon, uh, that I think you can, you can capture all of Christianity down to a verse. So let's get there. Micah, historically, put him in context. Uh, he lived around the same time as Isaiah. And there's actually some parallel between some of the things that they said. The question is, who was quoting whom? And chances are, actually, Isaiah was probably quoting Micah rather than the other way around. But it's the same kind of period that's taking place. The same Assyria is on the move. Okay? They are bearing down on the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is going to struggle with this as well as a massive refugee population fleeing out of the north, coming down to the south and swelling the borders of Judah, uh, trying to make ends meet uh, and meet the needs of people. This is a social and economic uh, nightmare, uh, a political and military one as well. But that's what Micah is doing. His name is a shortened form of Micaiah, which means one who is like Jehovah. And that's actually a question he's forcing upon the people. Are you going to be like him? I know I'm supposed to be. That's my name but it should be a name title for us all. He is out there searching for righteousness in hopes he'll be able to find it, whether in the north of Israel or in the south of Judah. He's preaching to them all. Chapter 1, he begins by passing judgment on the cities of Israel. In fact, chapter 1 and 2 and 3 are all messages of judgment. 4, five and, or four and 5 are then messages of hope. And then 6 and 7 starts with judgment and ends in hope. He's trying to remind, let's move in that direction, shall we? 
So begin. Verse 1 gives us this historical context. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishthite, which is a small town southwest of Jerusalem. He's a lot like Amos. And again, Amos is prophesying around the same time as well. So not a city slicker prophet like Isaiah was, but a country boy uh, like Amos. And from a small town. So some of the social, the economic that Amos was worried about, Micah is going to have a, some, some things to say about it as well. And he's prophesying in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So if he's there with Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, then yes, same time as Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah was Hezekiah's right-hand man. And his message is for both Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. So we got our, we're wrapping our heads around the historical context. Okay? Uh, Assyria, there's the enemy. Massive displacement, refugee population. How are we going to make ends meet? Uh, we are being, people are being disobedient to God, breaking the first great commandment. They're not caring for the poor and needy among them, breaking the second great commandment. Uh, sins against uh, fidelity to God and sins against humanity to their neighbor. How are we going to cope with all of this? Well, here's Micah's message. Verse 2, hear all ye people. Hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Can you hear him calling the court into session? Order, order in the court. Here, bring the judge, bring the jury, bring everyone. The Lord himself will be witness against you. He's the first one I'm going to call to the stand, and he's got some arguments to make. Uh, he's going to come from his holy temple. There's the focal point there in Jerusalem. In verse 3 and 4, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place. He's willing to come to your level, out of his holy house, this epicenter of holiness from which goodness is supposed to spread throughout the kingdom. Well, it isn't, but it's not the Lord's fault, it's yours. So he's going to come out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. High places, the, the false, the counterfeit temples out there, the places where others would go to climb to their counterfeit gods. He says, the mountains shall be molten under him, the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Sound a little like the highway construction Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 40. Mountains brought down, valleys exalted, rough places, plain, crooked, made straight. We're trying to speed the coming of the Lord so he can save us. Well, similar things are being spoken of here. Then verse 5, to the court case. For the transgression of Jacob, which, since that's Jacob, that's the whole family, okay? That's north and south. It's all this. And for the sins of the house of Israel, poetry, repeated idea. So, yes, it's Jacob. It's the whole house. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So yes, it's for the Samaria, it's for Jerusalem, north and south, and there's these issues about high places, these counterfeit temples, covenant infidelity. You're turning against your own God. How, how do you think you're going to survive the Assyrian onslaught if you have ejected the God of Israel? Abandon him. He has to abandon you. Verse 6 and 7, therefore, as a result, I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley and I will discover the foundations thereof. 
All the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. All the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. How's that for covenant infidelity all over again? Personified as a prostitute. And what will come as a result? Destruction. You cheated on me. You abandoned me. And despite Hosea always offering a return to the prodigal Gomer, if you don't come back to me, how can I remain with you and deliver you? Instead, no, all these results will come. The beating into pieces, the burning with fire. And it's not just the false gods and the high places that will be destroyed. It's all of Samaria and Jerusalem too, all of Israel and Judah as well, if you're not careful. He says in verse 8 and 9, Therefore I will wail and howl. How's that for mourning? I will go stripped and naked. How's that for uncovered, fully exposed to the demands of justice? I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls, for her wound is incurable, a fatal disease. It is come unto Judah, so it's contagious as well. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. You see, if it started up there in Samaria, and that was the sickness up there that is spelling disaster and defeat. It's a, an incurable wound because you won't repent. That's the only cure. You won't take your medicine. And worst of all, the iniquity of Israel is influencing Judah. I mean, all these refugees coming down, are they bringing down their false gods with them? These false beliefs? Or is it just that they've they know in the South what you've been doing in the North, and it's been affecting them for ill. We've got to be careful about what kind of influence we're being and what we're allowing, other, uh, what allow, what we're allowing it to influence us. Okay. Then verse 10. And from 10 through about 14, it's really fascinating, but only if you know Hebrew. Uh, and only if you get Micah's sense of humor <laughs> or his verbal ironies. Because what he ends up doing in these next five verses is he keeps listing cities and then letting them know what they're doomed for. But there are all these plays and puns on words. Uh, you think bad dad jokes and you kind of groan like, ah, okay. Well, these are better than that. But they're lost on an English reader. In verse 10 where he starts it, Declare ye it not at Gath. That's where Goliath was from, actually. So an enemy city there in the Phil among the Philistines. But weep ye not at all. In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. And Aphra and dust, there's a play on words there. There's actually a more modern translation of this. Uh, in, in the 1950s, there was one that was called a new translation of the Bible. And with these particular verses, he really tried to get creative to suggest what would it sound like to hear Micah cry repentance or cried or warned these cities of destruction that had something to do with their own names. This is what he came up with, uh, this translator, to put in perspective the next few verses. Weep tears at tear town. Grovel in the dust at dust town. Fare forth stripped, O fair town. Stir town, dare not stir. To horse and drive away, O horse town. O source of Zion's sin where the crimes of Israel center. 
O maiden Zion, you must part with Morisheth of Gath, and Israel's kings are ever balked at Balktown. Now, if that's still not close enough for us, imagine if President Nelson, <laughs> wanting to be creative with his language, were to cry repentance to a wicked world and say something like, Oh, Washington, there is a ton of washing you need to do. Oh, Los Angeles, where are the angels of your better nature? Oh, Amsterdam, you will be Amsterdammed if you do not repent of your sins. Or Helsinki, yeah, this is an easy one. You will sink into hell if you don't change. Maybe even you inhabitants of Salt Lake City. Why have you ceased to be the salt of the earth? You could probably do that with all kinds of cities. But what the Lord is trying to do, is, even if it's just the pun, the language, will it be a little more memorable this way? Micah does not have the eloquence of an Isaiah. Nobody does. But to use whatever he can to try to stick into the minds of his hearers, you've got to change. He's doing an amazing job. He then says in 15 and 16, to finish this chapter, Yet will I bring an heir. Other translations just simply say, A conqueror unto thee, O inhabitant of Merashah. He shall come unto Adulam, the glory of Israel. And other translations say, the nobles of Israel will flee to Adulam. And Adulam is one of those places where David fled from Saul. So there's, you know, some historical uh, precedent for this. He goes on, make thee bald, pull thee for thy delicate children, enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Now, what's he saying here? Two possibilities, at least I can see. One is if he really is talking about a conqueror, because then that's the Assyrians. Okay, here comes Sennacherib, and he's coming down, bear down upon you. He's going to, you're going to have to flee like David did from Saul. You're going to find little holes in the rocks, caves of Adullam and the glory of Israel, all the, the mighty people who think you're so safe in your palace. Remember how often Amos chewed them out for, for their palaces? Oh yeah, you're, the glory of Israel will be hiding in a cave somewhere. Because the conqueror is coming. So yeah, make yourself bald. Shave your head, sackcloth and ashes. How's that for real repentance and mourning? Actually, forget the repentance. It's too late you wouldn't do it. It's just mourning. Now that's one possibility. But there's another, if you think, heir? Hmm. Who's the real heir of the throne of David? I mean, in the short term, yes, it will be the king of Assyria. But in reality, the king of kings will someday come and renew the kingdom. There's the ultimate heir. And the glory of Israel? Mm, let's make heir capital H and glory capital G. And now who are we thinking of? So maybe this baldness is, is repentance, not mere mourning. And if we trust that someday, yes, this is a judgment chapter, but is there a glimmer of hope at the end? Is there a second meaning, another layer to what he's describing here? that someday the true heir of the throne of David will come and restore the glory of Israel. Oh, David did come out of Adullam after all. And he came back to a throne.
Well, chapter 2, we continue with another message of judgment. This one warns them of the scattering. The series on their way. But also hints toward a gathering. Micah says in verse 1 and 2, Woe to them that devise iniquity, and work evil upon their beds. The New Living Translation says, Who lie awake at night, thinking up evil plans. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. I mean, who's going to stop us? We can do anything we want. We can get away with it. Now, what iniquity were they devising? Again, to devise iniquity. Thinking, plotting, scheming, working evil upon the bed. And what was it? Next verse. They covet fields and take them by violence. Remember when Ahab really wanted Naboth's vineyard? And what did Jezebel do? Had him killed for it. So covet the field. Take it by violence. That's the kind of stuff that's been happening in northern Israel for many a king's reign. So let's do that. Let's covet. Let's take. Oh, and houses? Let's take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Remember Amos' big concern as they lay on their beds of ivory was that you were grinding upon the face of the poor. That you were trying to take what did not belong to you in the wrong way. This is oppression of the poor and needy. This is, again, even the thought of coveting the field, taking them by violence, oppressing people. Picture large corporations gobbling up all of the little mom-and-pop establishments. It's happening all around us. Picture giant agribusiness or agri-farm, like, yeah, agribusiness, giant farms like conglomerates that are buying up for less than they're worth the little farms across the nation. Why? Oh, because we can do it cheaper and we can sell easier for the consumer and everyone saves a buck. Well, while we're making a buck, hand over fist. You see the, the danger of capitalism run amok? That's what he's worried about, just like we saw in Amos. Then verse 3, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil. So you're not the only ones thinking up things on your bed. I'm devising, you're devising iniquity. I'm devising the consequence for your iniquity. And here's what it'll be. It will be something from which ye shall not remove your necks. There's no getting away from this. Neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. So there's going to be no escaping the Assyrians. They're going to be, in fact, here you are buying up all these lands for less than they're worth. Well, the Assyrians are really going to get a bargain as they destroy you, drive you off, and then really consolidate all this real estate. They're getting it for free. Verse 4 and 5, In that day shall one take up a parable against you. Kind of a saying. They're going to be so shocked at what they see. They will lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. And casting a cord by lot is kind of subdividing the land and getting everyone the lands of their inheritance. Picture what Joshua did when they got into the promised land. But now, you're not going to be the one doing that. You've been swept off. You're utterly spoiled and no one there can divide. You'll have no saying in the division of property. You don't get any. 
It's no longer your, under your control. Israel has been scattered. The Assyrians can do whatever they want. So verse 6, Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. See, this would make more sense if we used quotes and put the quotation marks around prophesy ye not. And who's saying that? Well, it's they. And what are they, who are they saying it to? To them that prophesy. So this is we've seen before as well, where they cover the eyes of the seers. They tell the prophets, don't prophesy. Like, quit saying things. We don't, you're making people feel bad, so just be quiet. It's like locking up Jeremiah or just shutting up the prophets. And that's what they're trying to do to Micah and others like him. Prophesy not. He goes on. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. That's what they're trying to Everything you say makes us feel bad. How dare you? Can't you publish peace? Remember the priests of Noah chided Abinadi for that? We're the true prophets. We're publishing peace. We're telling you to eat. We're telling the people to eat, drink, and be merry because there's no law and there's no consequence. So they're fine. And they love it. One of the most popular prophets ever. Unlike you, crying repentance and making people feel bad, making them get uncomfortable, making them get, feel shame. We don't, what are you, this is a shame culture? Come on now. No, that's such an easy thing to throw out there and go, oh, it's such a shame culture. Yeah, there, there, there may be problems with that, but someone crying repentance, that's not an appeal to shame. That's an appeal to guilt. And hopefully a conscience that's still troubled enough to realize that they need to change some things. Hopefully they will. But that's not what the people in Israel want. They just want Micah to zip it and quit telling us we're doing anything wrong. In verse 7, O thou that art named the house of Jacob, he says. You got my audience in mind? Is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Now what he's saying there is, can the Spirit of God really be restrained just to fit what people want prophets to say? In other words, is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? Like, no, 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 go this way. Say only these things. Really? Can you, can you force a prophet to agree with you? Yeah, prophets usually don't bend to popular opinion. They're not reeds shaken in the wind. To borrow the phrase that Jesus used to describe John. John was no reed. He spoke truth to power. He didn't care what people thought. That's prophets for you. There's Jeremiah with his fire in the bones. Yeah, see if you can quench that. <laughs> There's Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Hosea and so many other prophets at this time period that are watchmen on the tower. And as Isaiah said, <laughs> the watchmen on the tower will never hold their peace. So good luck trying to tell the prophets to prophesy not. But then when he says, don't my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Hmm, your reaction to my words says a lot about you. Because if you get angry, remember what Nephi says to Laman and Lemuel? It's the wicked that take the truth to be hard. Whereas the righteous, they love it because they're being justified by it. Like, yeah, that is how I live. Oh, and those are the righteous consequences? Awesome. Sign me up. And that's what's happening here. My words do good to him that walketh uprightly. I tend to love the conference talks about subjects that I'm already living. It's the ones that I'm not that kind of rub the wrong way. Well, you think? Then verse 8 and 9, Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. So they're getting in the way of God's saving work. 
when they're the ones that are supposed to be helping instead. To build Zion, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. But that, the exact opposite is happening. There's not one heart and one mind. They're doing their own thing. There's, there's t- tons of poor among them. They're making them poor. Okay? Coveting their fields, taking them by violence. So my own people has become my enemy. He describes it more. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely, as men averse from war. If that's confusing, the New Living Translation helps. You steal the shirts right off the backs of those who trusted you, making them as ragged as men returning from battle. He then says, The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant homes. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. So you are robbing from the most defenseless. And you're taking from them their sense of security, their pleasant house, their glory. There's nothing for these women and children to hold on to or to hope for. You've taken it from them. Verse 10, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. This promised land, no, it's a polluted land. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. Remember back in, was it Deuteronomy or Numbers, where it talked about if you're not, if you don't keep the promises on the promised land, then the promise, then the land promises to eject you, to vomit you out. That was the language it used, to spew you out of the land. That's strong stuff. But that's the scattering that's about to occur. And here he is warning them about it. This is not your land of rest. You're not taking advantage of the days of rest God offers you. This is polluted rather than promised. So verse 11, he goes on, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie. So that's a definition of a false prophet. He's walking in the spirit, there's the prophecy, but it's falsehood. So false prophecy. If he lies and says, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink. In other words, I'm going to give you the good news. Like, no, 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 eat, drink, and be merry. It's all good. God is with us. He's going to provide for us, protect us, bless us with all of these things. If that's your kind of prophet, notice what he says, he shall even be the prophet of this people. It's exactly what we want. We want prophets of good news. We want people that will scratch our itching ears. We want people to tell us exactly what we want to hear. That's our kind of prophet. That's exactly what Samuel the Lamanite warned them about. You Nephites, if somebody tells you what you want, you proclaim them as a prophet. But if somebody tells you what you don't want to hear, and the wicked take the truth to be hard, then there's a false prophet as far as they're concerned. And they'll shoot their arrows and drive them out. Exhibit A, he's saying. But it's not all bad news. Even at the end of this chapter full of warning and imminent destruction, as usual, mercy is only a verse or two away. So look at verse 12 and 13. As the Lord promises, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. Let me repeat that rhyme. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Don't believe me? Go talk to my friend Isaiah. He named his son Remnant Shall Return, for crying out loud. It'll happen. He will gather the remnant. Let me say it a third time. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, as the flock in the midst of their fold. You get a sense here three times. Assemble, gather, put them together. How's that for rhyming? In fact, they're going to be so packed, it's going to be like the sheep of Bozrah, one of the biggest flocks you could imagine. He goes on, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. 
That's how packed in this gathering will be. Here's the who hath begotten me these. There's no room for everyone. Then he says the breaker, and the New International Version translates that, the one who breaks open the way. Mm, they even capitalize the one. So, okay, I think I know who you're talking about. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it, and their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Now are we getting by those rhymes who's going to break us out of bondage? Now, no wonder there's so many sheep like the flock of Bozrah because the good shepherd has come. Beautiful promises here. It's a true promise from a true prophet. Unfortunately, chapter 3, we're back to false prophets. In fact, false shepherds who end up feeding themselves. Remember the Lord's condemnation of the false shepherds in Israel in Ezekiel 34? You get a hint of that here in Micah chapter 3. Verse 1, And I said here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, whole family, ye princes of the house of Israel, again, whole group, north and south, is it not for you to know judgment? That is, don't you know right from wrong? Shouldn't you embrace justice? Shouldn't you know better than the way you're acting towards God and towards your neighbor? In verse 2 and 3, who hate the good and love the evil. There's the reversal of the polarities of morality that we see. You call good evil, evil good. Isaiah gives the same warning. And then some really graphic imagery here from Micah. Who pluck off their skin from off them. And then Akio goes deeper, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces, as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron. Now that's as graphic a metaphor as I think I've ever seen. It's strong. When we sometimes talk about fleecing the poor, I mean, we just saw a metaphor about the sheep of Bozrah. Well, oh yeah, sure, gather them in and then let me fleece them. Let me shear the sheep and take that wool for myself. But this is even worse. It's not just shearing the sheep. It's skinning people alive. It's picking the flesh from the bone. So you can do what? So you can break the bone, chop it in pieces, stick it in the pot, throw it in the cauldron. Oh, dinner's about to be served. And what are we eating? Each other. This is economic cannibalism. We have gone beyond the objectification of the labor force to the commodification of people to the point of reducing them down to the level of, of dinner itself, treating a human being just like a piece of meat. Again, and Micah, again, is from a poor village. This is, this is how you make dinner, and he's seen it among the nobles and the prosperous at the expense of the poor. So verse 4, Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. Too late for that. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. It's the punishment fits the crime. You've been ignoring God. Maybe God is letting you know what it feels like. So he says in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err. These are false prophets. That bite with their teeth and cry peace 
and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Now, the way that's phrased in King James is tricky, so here's some help from the New International Version. They proclaim peace if they have something to eat. That's the biting with their teeth. But prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Now, do you understand what he's getting at? This goes back to what we said about Samuel the Lamanite and what we saw in the previous chapter. That as long as you tell me what I want to hear, then, oh, sure, I'll pay you for that. This is like Nehor in the Book of Mormon. That we should pay priests and they should become popular. And what's the best way to be a popular priest? Duh. Tell people what they want to hear. It's, I actually remember when I was at Divinity School, surrounded by people that were preparing for the ministry. And yes, a paid ministry. I would not accuse them of priestcraft because they, these were good people. And this is how they wanted to spend their lives. And they weren't planning on becoming rich. Yet there are some very well-paid, wealthy, oh, commercialistic, consumeristic uh, clergymen out there. Okay, Preaching the prosperity gospel and using themselves as exhibit A of just how prosperous you can be. That's not what I'm talking about. My friends at Divinity School were just consecrated Christians that wanted to make a difference in the world. And I, I, I wish them all the success because it's success for the Savior. But they have to make ends meet and they have to pay the bills. And of course, there's an economic aspect there. But what was interesting, I remember a few conversations where I was in a theological preaching class and we were studying biblical texts and how would you preach them. And a few, I remember coming have just beautiful talks, beautiful sermons that they prepared. And we'd critique each other and give feedback. And, and I remember one, uh, several times, the prospective clergyman or clergywoman would say, I wish I could really preach this in my congregation. But no one would want to hear that. And it was like, really? I said, oh yeah, they're to this or to, they're to that. And I'm trying to, I can't, I can't afford to do it. And it was really interesting to hear not in a priestcraft way, but in a practical way, a pragmatic way. I, I have to keep the lights on at the church. And I have to have a salary to be able to support my family. And if there's an empty pew, then it's an empty coffer. It's, no one's putting money in the plate. And not that that's, that's not why I'm doing it. But honestly, I came away from those conversations being so grateful for a lay ministry that never has to worry about a paying customer, even for the, the most selfless of reasons. Because the issue is, if it's, it's like priestcraft on the part of the people, not priestcraft on the part of the priest. It's them that are demanding priests after their own kind. I want you to tell me I'm doing everything okay. If you do, then oh yeah, I'll give you something to eat. If not, then go ahead and starve, because I don't want that. You're not giving me the bread of life that I really want. It's such an interesting dilemma that churches are, are, are find themselves in. So what will the result be? Look at 6 and 7. Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision. That's just what you were wanting, right? Prophets, prophets prophesy not. Seers, close your eyes. He says, it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. 
This is the darkness and light equivalent of Amos's food versus famine in the land. Now, they got their food. They're eating each other economically. But as far as light to see by, no, there's none of that. They've extinguished it. They've told the seers not to see. And so let the punishment fit the crime. They won't see either. Darkness everywhere. Sun down on the prophets. But, Micah says in verse 8 and 9, so this is his chance to, to stop the downward spiral and say, hey, forget all those things the false prophets have said and get ready to hear a true one, me. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. How's that for Jeremiah like fire in the bones? He's full of it, full of power, full of spirit, full of judgment, full of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression. Yeah, I'm going to call it out. I'm not going to tell him what they want to hear. I'm going to tell him what they need to hear. I'll declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. And here it is. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, ye princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. Please listen. Listen to an authorized, unapologetic cry to repent. And here it is, verse 10 and 11. They build up Zion with blood. Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire. There's the priestcraft again. The prophets thereof divine for money. Just what Nehor wanted. And despite all that, yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. You catch the irony there? They still are claiming God on their side. Oh, we're true prophets of the true God. And as long as God is with us, then what could the Assyrians possibly do? Oh, just prepare yourself and wait to see. Because you're not deserving of his protection anymore. You've driven him away. And what will finally wake them up to that reality? Verse 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake, so I'm only doing this for your greater good, as much as it pains me, for your sake, Zion shall be plowed as a field. We're just going to start this whole thing over. Uproot things. Turn over the soil. Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. This is a, a shocking prophecy. Micah, as bold as you can get, is not only warning them about the destruction of the northern kingdom without its temple, but of the south eventually as well. Zion city of God, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be no better than a high place of the forest. That's what people have been treating it as. So I guess they're expecting God to treat it that way as well. But to leave it, to abandon it to its enemies, that's what's going to happen. Not with the Assyrians. Be a little more patient. But when the Babylonians come, that's exactly what will happen to the house of the Lord in the kingdom of Judah. Chapter 3 ends on a devastating note. And if the book of Micah ended there, then there's bad news that people are left to wrestle with. However, as we've said so many times before, mercy is always waiting in the wings. And so chapter 4 has this for promises to Israel and to Judah. You'll recognize the beginning. Verse 1 through 3, But in the last days... 
So despite all that will happen as Zion is plowed like a field, despite the destruction of the house of the Lord, in the last days, when all the wrongs are made right, when apostasy is replaced by restoration, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. We could say in this context, re-established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, including those counterfeit temples that you've been creating. And people shall flow unto it. This is Isaiah chapter 2, right? The, the river that flows uphill to the temple, that divine draw from the house of the Lord. He goes on, same as Isaiah 2. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The quote continues, he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I told you that there was a lot of overlap between the ministries of Micah and Isaiah. And as I said, it's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, the Isaiah version is the more famous of the two, simply because Isaiah is more famous than Micah. But chronologically, it's more likely that Isaiah was quoting Micah here than Micah quoting Isaiah. In some ways, it doesn't matter. Either way, we get two witnesses of a restoration of the temple and the flowing of all nations to it, a time of peace where who needs a sword? We can use this to plow the field. It's an incredible promise. And it's one that we are seeing fulfilled as temples begin to dot the earth places of peace from which will spread holiness to cover the earth. Micah then says in verse 4 and 5, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Famous phrases there. And none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, I just said that that first part is incredibly famous. In fact, George Washington, who was uh, not a, a typical Christian, but a man of great faith in, in divine providence, uh, he loved that passage. And he quoted the, the, the concept of dwelling in peace. Here's a man of war, right? Yeah, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Well, a man of war speaking of peace and looking forward to the day when he could finally enjoy it. He talked about Mount Vernon, his home in Virginia, as a place where he could finally retire from the military, retire from politics, and just rest under his vine, under his fig tree. I, I think one scholar said that, he, that Washington quoted that phrase like 50 times throughout his correspondence. And one of them was particularly tied to what Micah says here, because in one letter that Washington wrote to a group of Jews who were worried about, will there be religious freedom here? That's one of the things that Washington assured them of. Yes, here in America, you will be free to worship as you choose. You Jews, and let me quote to you one of your own scriptures, will be able to rest under your vine and under your fig tree, just like the rest of us. And in fact, Think about that in the context of what he said in the next verse. How is that going to work? How are we all going to be at peace one with another? 
Well, because everyone will walk in the name of his God, lowercase g, while we, house of Israel, will walk in the name of the Lord our God, capital G. That's amazing because it hints. I mean, as shocking as it was for Jonah to talk about uh, non-Israelites being more righteous than an Israelite prophet, this is pretty shocking as well that here in the Hebrew Bible, religious freedom is being described. And even if you don't walk after our God, that's okay. Walk after yours. Live. I'm convinced that any religion done right will improve people. That if you will simply live up to the best of your religion, you'll be better than you otherwise would be. It's truth there. It's light there. Respond to it. Live into it. So even if you believe differently than I do, if you will walk in the name of your God and allow me the same privilege, let us worship how, where, and what we may, right? 11th article of faith. There's peace. There's millennium. There's the chance to continue learning and growing in God. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Then verse 6 and 7, continuing this prophecy of the last days, that's how he starts it, in that day, saith the Lord, Will I assemble her that halteth? Let me rhyme it. I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. I will make her that halted a remnant. There's that all that it's always there. A remnant shall remain. A remnant shall return. That's going to be the the leaven that leavens the lump. The, The group to which all others are gathered. Her that was cast off. Of her I will make a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. There's the promised gathering. There's the remnant growing into a mighty nation. He says in verse 8, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. You hear that? The kingdom will return to Judah. Yes, we'll be plowed as a field, but new planting occurs after plowing. And new planting will lead to new growth. That's the promise here. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to come easily. (laughs) So brace yourself. So he says in 9 and 10, Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? I mean, there won't be for a while there in scattered Israel. Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. You hear all this imagery of a woman in labor bearing down pain to be able to deliver? He goes on, For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now, there's an interesting prophecy. Now, there's a lot of pain involved in this, hence imagery of childbirth. Obviously, Micah doesn't know what that feels like personally, but he must have watched his wife or something, because this is an intense prophecy. There will be pain here. Pain in the scattering of Israel by the Assyrians. Pain in the captivity of Judah by the Babylonians. But hold on to hope, because even there in Babylon, Now our prophecy has fast forward past Assyria to Babylon. And there in Babylon thou shalt be delivered. That's the real one when the baby comes forth. Because what will happen there in Babylon? 
The Persians will conquer them. They will allow you to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And since all of these ancient experiences are previews of coming attractions, think of the wicked world. Even here we are stuck in Babylon, but God will deliver us even from the wicked world that we find ourselves surrounded in. Deliver us now so we can go back to Zion and build. He says in verse 12, uh, or 11 and 12, Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Of course, doubters only see bad news, but it's all just part of the plan. Being cut down prepares us for the harvest. Being scattered allows us to spread the possibility of growth so that then when things are grafted in, oh, and then gathered, imagine what we're bringing back to Zion with us. This is the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5. This is the plan of the Lord. And so don't don't look down on things and think, oh, hope is lost for the house of Israel. God knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, in some ways, if you keep with all of this uh, agricultural imagery, cutting things down is part of the harvest. Uh, threshing things is important because it separates kernel from, from chaff. Winnowing is important because it blows away the things that shouldn't be here. This is all examples of what Elder Maxwell called redemptive turbulence. So we, we can hold on to this. It's going to be okay. To the point that he says in verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. <laughs> go move forward on this agricultural metaphor. Thresh go, uh, yourself. Move the, the work forward. For I will make thine horn iron. I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Now that's such a powerful prophecy that Jesus himself will quote it in 3 Nephi, when he's among the Nephites. This idea of Israel as an unstoppable ox. Picture the oxen underneath the baptismal font in the temple, bearing up the burden of that blessing they're meant to carry to the whole world. But this ox is even stronger than the ones you could imagine. In the book of Deuteronomy, when it talks about Ephraim as a mighty ox, and it uses its horns to gather, to herd the rest of the family home. Well, imagine if, if, if horns aren't sharp enough or strong enough, then what do you say we cover them with iron? If your hooves aren't strong enough as they are, let's cover them with brass or bronze. And now you have, it truly, it's the unstoppable force. And what's it doing with those hooves? Gathering. What's it doing with those, or those horns? Gathering. With the hooves, it's threshing. So arise, thresh. And not just thresh out your enemy, rather separate wheat from chaff so you can gather the wheat into the garner. That's the hope here. Even when he says at the end of consecrating their gain unto the Lord, this is plundering the riches of Egypt all over again. This is them bringing their gifts into the Lord's storehouse. They have things to contribute as well. And nothing can stop this work. In fact, I finished the quote, no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. It's got iron hooves or iron horns after all and brass hoofs. 
Powerful, powerful image. And how will that come to pass? Turn to chapter 5. And here you meet the promised Messiah. If we're gathering in 4, I guess we better meet the chief gatherer. So in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Now gather together in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Yes, that's the bad news. Destruction of Israel and Judah. But what's the good news? Here it comes. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This is one who's been prophesied from the beginning. In fact, from before the beginning. Not just of old, but from everlasting. And where will he come from? As the enemy is gathering their troops and laying siege, ah, here comes the real conqueror, the real heir. Here comes the Messiah. And he will be born in Bethlehem. Even though Bethlehem is such a small town among the thousands of Judah. Oh, don't worry. Remember, Micah is from a small town. He's concerned about the poor and the needy in small towns all throughout Israel and Judah. Remember when Isaiah talks about his messianic prophecy? will be a king of kings, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Well, that's coming from a court uh, prophet. This is coming from a, a village seer. And Micah, oh yes, he'll be king of kings. Yes, he'll be the mighty God, but he'll also be born a babe in Bethlehem. If you remember in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come and ask Herod, we're here to honor and worship the king of the Jews. Any idea where he might be? And Herod's freaking out, like, what do you mean king of the Jews? You're looking at him. But he turns to his wise men, his wise men, and says, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And guess where they turn? Micah chapter 5. And they say, oh, I guess it's Bethlehem. And that's where the, the wise men go to find him. It's actually interesting because later in the New Testament, there are those who doubt Jesus as the Messiah because as far as they're concerned, well, he, this can't be the guy. He's from Nazareth. You'll, yeah, but he wasn't born there. They don't know that. But they assume he can't possibly be the Messiah if, if he's from Nazareth. I mean, can any good thing come of Nazareth, right? The good thing, the best thing will come of Bethlehem. If only they'd known. Then verse 3 and 4, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Is this sounding a little like Isaiah's, A virgin shall conceive? Here's this woman that travaileth and will bring forth. Does it sound a little like Isaiah's Sheir Yashub? A remnant shall return. Again, these are contemporary prophets. Micah goes on, he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, they'll stay, they'll be here. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, to feed in the strength of the Lord. I get the sense of what Isaiah said about butter and honey shall he eat, until he knows to, cho to choose good and not evil, and by that time we will be free of our enemy. Yes, there was a literal component, that part of the Isaiah layer cake. But the ultimate crowning of that prophecy will be the coming of Christ. Right, Micah then says in verse 5 and 6, And this man, 
the one who will be brought forth, the one that comes from Bethlehem, this man shall be the peace. He's not just the prince of peace. He is peace personified. He shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds. You get a sense that the war will be won by an army of good shepherds with the greatest of shepherds taking the lead. So seven shepherds, eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, and when he treadeth within our borders. That really is our only hope. It's going to be the coming of Christ. The Messiah will free us from Assyria. The Messiah will free us from Babylon. The, the Messiah will free us from Rome. Well, even better than that. The Messiah will free us from sin. He will conquer every enemy. He's our only hope. So Micah goes on in verse 7, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. We saw just a moment ago what he'll be like, an unstoppable ox. This is a softer image. He will be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. So here, more gently, Israel is a life-giving blessing. One that doesn't come tre tre you know, treading down the enemy and trampling upon the, the, the grain like this mighty ox. No, this is the gentle dew. This is the living water showering down from heaven, giving life to everything it touches. This is Gibbs said the little stream, okay? And Israel will come that way too. I love the images that Micah paints, both the strong and the gentle, but blessings everywhere it goes. He then says in verse 8, another image of Israel, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. We've got the mighty ox, we've got the gentle dew. Well, how about the majestic lion? Israel as the king of beasts, led by none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah. In verse 9, Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee. I will destroy thy chariots. I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. You catch the repetition of cutting off? We're cutting off the military enemies there, but he's also cutting off the spiritual enemies. So he says in 12 through 14, I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. Oh, see the repetition over and over of that concept of cutting off. Rather than let Israel be cut off from the presence of the Lord, can we cut off the things that would take you from my presence? Let's get rid of those. Let's pluck those out. Then 15, the chapter ends, I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. 
This is coming from him who says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And he's going to. But it's not just against the enemies of Israel that this payment will come. It's also against Israel itself. That's why they have to be threshed themselves before they can thresh the world. It's why they're going to be destroyed by Babylon and scattered by Assyria. You see, I mentioned at the beginning that the first three chapters of Micah are the judgments. The next two chapters is the hope. But then when we get to chapter 6 and chapter 7, we go back and review what we've seen before and go back from judgment onto hope. So here's judgment in chapter 6, and it is the Lord making his case against Israel. We saw that at the beginning. Listen up, gather the judge, the jury. Here's my case against my people. We're going to repeat that idea here. So there's some similarity. Verse 1 and 2. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. What he means by controversy is a court case. The Lord is basically suing the people <laughs> for malpractice, for breach of contract, or in this case, breaking of covenant, that they have not been true to him as they had promised in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the controversy he's wrestling with. So here's the court case that he's rendering. It's, it's almost like he's saying, okay, everyone listen up. Mountains, hills, everything in between. I got a bone to pick with you. And here it is, verse 3 through 4. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, <laughs> if you can, that is. It's amazing the Lord is starting with a Lord is it I kind of approach. What have I done to you that would make you turn away from me? And then he reviews the, the fact that he's been innocent. I haven't done anything. Here's his evidence. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. All the evidence is on God's side. And the exodus from Egypt is exhibit A. His mercy, his deliverance. And I love the fact that not only does he mention Moses and Aaron in that, but he mentions Miriam. That the Lord remembers, acknowledges, honors the service of his daughters just like he does the, servant, the service of his sons. I love that we get Miriam the prophetess, the song of Miriam and the song of the sea. She's amazing. And the Lord remembers it. Better yet, he reminds the people of it. One of the greatest gifts I gave you was Miriam. What more did you want? How's that for exhibit A and B and C and D and so on? Here's some more. Verse 5, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, or Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord? Here, again, here's more evidence. Uh, he uses the Exodus. He uses Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now he's using Balaam and his trusty donkey, <laughs> more trustworthy than Balaam was. I did everything for you. I kept Balaam from cursing you, even though Balak was trying to pay him to do just that. I've had your back this whole time. I would have it against the Assyrians too, but you've driven me away. 
Verse 6 and 7 then follows, and it seems to be Israel's response, like, okay, you win the court case. We have, we have no leg to stand on. So what am I supposed to do? How do we settle things? And their offer, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Yes, it's obvious that you win. And if you've sued us, you could take everything we have. We have nothing. We have no leg to stand on. We have no defense. I don't know how to settle this out of court. I don't know how to appease you because of all we've done against you. Is there enough oil in the world to give you balm of Gilead, to soothe the pain we've caused you? Are there enough animals, thousands of rams? Is that enough to say we're sorry? Could we give you the firstborn? Since that's exactly what you've offered to give to us, babe in Bethlehem. Well, the interesting thing here is the way the Lord responds through Micah. That's what you think I've wanted all this time? You think the external is what appeases me? No, the external was just a way to try to aim deeper at the internal. That's what I'm really after. I'm not looking for sacrifices of beasts and rams and rivers of oil. I'm looking for a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Can you give me that? And then the Lord responds with what he's been hoping for all along. And this is the verse I hinted at, that you could perhaps distill all discipleship down to this one passage. Verse 8 of Micah chapter 6, an absolute masterpiece. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. So you should already know it's not rivers of oil. It's not massive amounts of external sacrifice. This is it. This is what's good. This is what he requires thee. Just three things. To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And I'm just simple enough to believe that it really is that simple. Three two-word commands. Just do justly. Just love mercy. And just walk humbly. Before God. Not just before Him. With Him. Right alongside Him. I really do think it all boils down to that. It's amazing what He's asking us to do. For our sake more than for His. You see, to do justly seems to me the first great commandment. It's the vertical component of our discipleship. If I'm doing justly, then I am loving God with all my heart, my mind, and strength. I'm following Him. That's what justice demands, and I will do it. I will be just with God and just with myself. I will, I'm not going to rationalize or justify or try to take an easy way out. I'm going to do all that the Lord my God hath commanded me. Now, the problem with that 
if that's the head of that coin, justice and obedience, the tails of that exact coin is that we tend to hold other people to the same standard. And our judgment turns into judgmentalness. And our, our strictness in the law becomes a harsh strictness that we hold other people to. Which is why the second statement is there, to love mercy. Not just to allow it to have its day in court, but to love it. And to love mercy, mercy is, is only the beginning, because the Hebrew word there is chesed, which means mercy, but loving kindness and compassion and charity, and like every good thing is wrapped up in that one word. And that's what we're supposed to love. And to me, that's the horizontal, the second great commandment. That's loving neighbor as you love yourself. And the beauty of the interplay between these two is too often we're either really good at one and as a result really bad at the other or vice versa. Some people know they, they do justly, but they demand that everyone else do too. Others love mercy toward others and, oh man, I really hope God's going to be merciful to me too because I'm not going to hold them to much of a standard and I don't really hold myself to one either. Most people are wired for one or the other. And the Lord is asking us to rewire ourselves, or actually let him rewire us, to be better at both. I don't know if that's possible without the third element, walking humbly with our God. Because that humility will allow the Spirit to come to keep those other elements in balance. This is the ultimate proving of contraries verse, really. To do justly, but at the same time to love mercy. And how do I know? in a given moment, if I should be more merciful or more just? Well, walk humbly with God, and He'll let you know. He's the ultimate prover of contraries. He lives constantly in perfect balance and can judge righteously to know whether do justly or love mercy is the right thing in the right amount at the right time for the right person. This passage is amazing beyond proving contraries and beyond the vertical and horizontal, beyond the two great commandments, you can even see the stages of faith here. Because typically in the creation stage, our focus is on do justly. And we teach our children obedience and we try to retrain the natural man that this is the path we walk in. Come on, you can do this. There's doing justly. But in the fall stage, oh, we better love mercy. We need it for ourselves. And typically those that are in it are often very willing to give it to others. Sometimes not the people that are still back in creation, but they're working on it. And what happens and how do you get to the atonement stage beyond? We couple doing justly, the best thing we learned in creation. We couple it with loving mercy, the best thing we learn in the fall. And together we walk humbly with our God up the ascent of the atonement with both justice and mercy in either hand. I love Micah chapter 6 verse 8. To me it really does boil it all down. It, can, it solves the world's problems. Can you imagine? Anytime we're in a situation wondering what to do, think of those six words. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, and God will help you know what to do.
Thank you, Micah, for that. He's still not done. He's got a few more masterpieces to give us. So he says in verse 9 and 10, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Makes you wonder, will we be wise enough to see that name, to listen when he calls? Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? There's a sense there of learn to take correction from the Lord. There's the rod, right? Straightening people. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? You see, what he's saying there is, you could find no evidence against me, but I'm finding plenty of evidence against you. Uh, that's why I have my rod, and it needs to correct you. Assyria will be the rod of my indignation, Isaiah will say. Similar imagery here in Micah. And the problem? You've stashed away the so-called treasures of wickedness there. And I'm aware of them, these abominable measures. He clarifies that in verse 11 and 12. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances, with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. There's dishonesty in your economic dealings, and they're all unfair to the poor. Remember we saw that before about making the shekel great and the ephah small? The inflation, the shrinkflation, the economic rapacity, taking advantage of the poor, same thing's happening here. As a result, verse 13, Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. The New International Version describes that as, Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. But I do kind of like the King James. The NIV helps me understand it, but then go take it back, take that understanding back and reinsert the, the language of King James and this idea of making you sick in smiting thee. When I was in Tennessee and you'd listen to, to hometown hero Dave Ramsey about economics and, and he would always say, aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I get this sense there about being sick in getting smitten by the Lord. When are you going to be done needing this kind of correction? The Assyrians, still not enough. Babylonians, still not enough. Greeks, still not enough. Seleucids, Ptolemies, Romans. Come on. When? Just change. Be coachable. Be teachable. Be changeable. Because I'm hoping you're getting sick of smite, being smitten. I'm sure I'm smick of, sick of, of smiting you. He then says in 14 and 15, Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied. Thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold, but none shall deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but shall not drink wine. We'll see what, in my opinion, is an even better version of this when we get to Haggai in a little while. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and it's buried there in Haggai. But you see something similar here about you're eating, but you're still hungry. Or the next example, you're laying hold of it, but you just can't quite deliver it. Another example, you're planting, but you're not harvesting. You're, you've got all these olives, but no oil to show for it. There's the wine. Uh, why are you still thirsty? 
you get a sense here, you guys are going through the motions and you have nothing to show for it. That describes a lot of our pseudo-discipleship, doesn't it? When will we actually do what it takes to enjoy the fruits of our labors? Then lastly, he says in verse 16, For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and ye walk in their counsels. Those were the wicked kings of Israel. Okay, I mean, Ahab and Jezebel, Omri was Ahab's father. I mean, this is, this is a messed up family line. That I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof an hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. What dynasty do you want to be a part of? Omri and Ahab and beyond? Or how about the king of kings, the lord of lords, the babe of Bethlehem? Someday he'll come to the throne. Prepare for that. That's the sense you get in chapter 7. When all is said and done, and a man of mercy stands before you, inviting you to come unto him. This is where judgment turns to hope one last time. He says in verse 1, Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There's no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. Again, for a farmer, for a herdsman, that's what Amos was, for a poor man from a poor village, that's what Micah is. You ever been so hungry you just want um, a full meal? And all you're getting are the grape gleanings? What's left for the poor? Barely a handful, not even a full cluster to eat your soul. Oh, would desire the first ripe fruit. You're getting the leftovers. <laughs> I'm a fan of blueberries, any berries, really. But I remember going to Maine for the first time, and I'd heard that Maine was famous for its blueberries, and so I started salivating the moment I crossed the border. And I, was, I could hardly wait to get to some farm out there and find a blueberry that was probably the size of a, I don't know, a grapefruit. That's what I was picturing in my mind. I mean, if, if the state's famous for them, <laughs> I always thought bigger was better. But, well, no, these were main wild blueberries. And we pulled off when we first saw a sign. And I, I just, even sight unseen, I was like, can I buy a whole crate? I was so excited. And they gave it to me. And I got in the car and I started looking at them. And they were the tiniest little things I'd ever seen. I was used to like Costco blueberries that aren't quite grapefruit, but they're like grape size. They're amazing. Uh, I guess I didn't realize, I guess if they're wild, they're not being thinned and they don't grow bigger. They're just like natural. Huh. The bummer there, they tasted good, but man, I had to whole, eat whole handfuls to even get the taste into me. <laughs> okay. And I get a sense here of just somebody hungry and I just want something more than a grape gleaning. Is there not something more that God would offer us? Well, if you come into him, there will be. In the meantime, verse 2 and 3, the good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. You ever felt that way? Just wondering if you're alone in living your standards? Remember that was Elijah's concern? I'm the only one left. And God had to reassure him, oh, there's 7,000 others. Look around. But here's the sense at the end of the Israelite nation, is there anyone upright left? The way Micah describes it is, no, they all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. Now that's becoming your brother's keeper in all the wrong ways, right? That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. 
How's that for a powerful description? It's not enough to do evil. You got to do it both hands. Uh, you got to do it earnestly with all you've got. He says, the prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. And so they wrap it up. His translated elsewhere. They conspire together, or they scheme to twist justice. How's that for the princes and the judges and the great men? Oh, sure. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And they'll get away with anything. How's that? There's all this creative, earnest evil. And Micah sees it all around him. To the point that verse 4, the best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. What a tragedy when even the best among us are more thorn than rose, more, we more weed than flower. Looks like we've got some weeding to do. So Micah says in verse 5 and 6, Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. Your own wife can't even be trusted. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I'll sum it up. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. We're getting to a point where you can't trust anyone. Not friends, not family. There's no one, not even your own spouse, not even your own children. When you're uncomfortable, even in your own home, because you're afraid of the people that you live with, that's a scary turn for society. But if there's no one to trust, then where can you turn? We'll turn to seven and it'll tell you. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He's the one the only one that I can always rely on. And so turn to him. Verse 8 and 9, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. I mean, yes, I'm down on my luck. I'm being destroyed by Babylon or scattered by Assyria. But don't, don't look and laugh. Don't kick a man when he's down. Because notice what he says next. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. So I know what I'm getting. I get what I deserve. But go on. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. That's a powerful verse. Israel knows they deserve punishment. They're, they're getting it. They, they're reaping what they sowed. But he knows that even punishment is redemptive as far as the Lord is concerned. I'm trying to correct you here. And so once you've been corrected, once you've borne the indignation of the Lord, then, then instead of pleading against you, he shifts from lawyer for the prosecution to lawyer for the defense. That quickly. It's amazing. He's the one that's called this court case. You... There's no way to settle it other than repentance and righteousness. And if you won't do that, then yes, the lawyer of the for the prosecution will demand punishment. But if you endure it well, 
If your scattered state wakes you up to a need for righteousness, then lawyer for the prosecution quickly becomes lawyer for the defense, and he pleads for you. He executes justice and judgment for you instead of against you. He brings you into the light because he is the light of the world. So no wonder when you fall. Yeah, don't laugh at me while I'm down here. I'm getting up. And don't blame the Lord. He's brought me down, but he will lift me up. I know it. And then verse 10, Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. Now, how's that for poetic justice? The person that was looking down on you in scorn will now feel some shame of their own. Those that were mocking you saying, oh, where's the Lord your God? You still wondering? He helped me rise. He lifted me out of that. But I guess there's room down there now for you. As you are trodden un like the mire of the streets. How's that for the brass hooves of this mighty ox? Where's the Lord? Right here with us. We've returned to him. Then verse 11 and 12. In the day that thy walls are to be built. Or as it said in other translations. The day for building your walls will come. In that day shall the decree be far removed or in other translations, the day for extending your boundaries will come. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, other translations, even from Egypt, and from the fortress even to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. So even though there's going to be desolation in the short term, in the long term there's hope. Whether you're scattered into Assyria or down into Egypt, these world superpowers trying to gobble you up. Ultimately, the Lord will deliver us. And as promised in that verse, he will come to thee no matter where you're found. Remember he knows where every Easter egg is hidden? And the gathering of Israel will be glorious no matter where you've been scattered. In verse 14 and 15, Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto them marvelous things. Oh, the good shepherd, yes, he'll feed you. You are... A straying sheep, but you're also the flock of his heritage. And just like he brought Israel out of Egypt the first time, just like that, the glory, the, the, the miracles, the marvels of the Exodus will be eclipsed by the marvels of the gathering of Israel. Remember Jeremiah said that? Same chapter about the hunters and the fishers. And people will be so blown away by the gathering of Israel. They'll no longer define God by the exodus, they'll define him by the gathering. That will be his new high point. And we get to be a part of it. It's incredible. Verse 16 and 17 next. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. 
They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. How's that for being left speechless by the miracles you see in the gathering of Israel? They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Those nations that didn't fear God in the worshipful way will fear him in the frightened way. As they see the kingdom of God come forth, Oh, clear as the, as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. How's that for iron horns and brass hooves? And then verse 18. We're almost done. These are the last three verses Micah will give us. He starts in 18 with this question. Who is a God like unto thee? Which is a beautiful play on Micah's own name. Remember his name means who is like Jehovah? Well, here it is. Who is a God like thee? And then here's his doxology. What does he know God to be? A God that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. It's amazing he could get over that. He says, he retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Did you catch that ending? It's not that just he, okay, I probably should be merciful. They're just kids. They don't know what they're doing. No, it's he loves it. He delights in mercy. What brings God joy? Forgiving his children. Balancing justice and mercy, but honoring mercy as soon as justice is satisfied. No wonder he's so quick to shift from prosecution to defense. That's what defines him. Who's like, who's like that? Honestly, it's hard to think of like mere mortals that are that kind, but this is no mortal. This is a God unlike any other who pardons iniquity. Remember what Jonah was saying at the end? The same kind of thing, but he was mad about it. <laughs> well, it makes no sense. Micah makes perfect sense. What a gift to have a God like this. Doesn't it reassure you to know that you can come unto him? That you can repent of your sins no matter what they might be? No matter how far Assyria has scattered you? Just come. This is a God who delights in mercy. Go make his day. Just change. Then verse 19. He will turn again. Remember, turn, repent. You turn to him. He'll turn to you. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. How's that for ta taming the tiger? And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Again, are we back to Jonah? But this time it's the sin, not the sinner, that's cast into the depths. I mean, Jonah could have had it that way if he'd repented. See, that way the sin and the sinner are separated, and then the sin can get thrown overboard, and all will be peace. In Jonah's case, no, they were still one and the same, so he had to go down, unless otherwise the ship would. But I love that, that imagery, the way Micah is describing it. You ever just thrown something out into the ocean and just a rock or something, and you just throw it out there and I can't even remember where it is as the water keeps shifting and the waves keep crashing and I'll never see that thing again as it sinks to the depths of the sea. 
We saw the sea of chaos in Jonah. Now we see an ocean of mercy spreading as far as the eye can see, swallowing up any sin that we offer to God in repentance. It's amazing. And then Micah ends, verse 20. Having forgiven his people, now what can the Lord do? Look at this. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. That's all God has ever wanted. I promised. I made a covenant with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that Abrahamic covenant to choose you because they chose me. And by choosing you to then send you forth so you could choose everyone else to be chosen right alongside you. In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These are the saviors on Mount Zion of Obadiah. These are the good shepherds of Israel. This is God performing his truth to Jacob. I said I'd do it. This is him proving his mercy to Abraham. The Lord just wants to do justly and keep his promise. He does love mercy. That's why he keeps giving us these chances. He doesn't need to walk humbly with God because he is God. (laughs) He's wanting us to walk humbly with him. And as we close the book on this week's study, that's what he's inviting us to do. To come unto him. And to be more like him. To, To do justly ourselves. Because that's what the Lord would do. To love mercy towards others. Because that's what the Lord loves. And to walk humbly with our God. Because in his condescension, he's humble enough to come down to our level. Hand in hand. Walking with him. All the way home.